Welcome back to Book to Show. Everybody, it's great to have you here again, and we are excited, as usual, to discuss Game of Thrones. It's episode three time, The Queen's Justice. I see a lot of you are here already and chatting away. We have a small technical problem going on. Everything's fine on our end, but apparently poor Lady Gwen has been assaulted by the forces of the Storm God. She currently has no power, so we're hoping that clears up and she can join us. But for now, we have only half of Radio Westeros, and that's Yoke Boy. Hey, Yoke Boy, how you doing? Hey, I'll try and be twice as big to make up for it. <laughs> I'm going to be taking on some of Lady Gwyn's notes to try and uh, make the make our contribution nice and rounded. So forgive me if I make any mistakes in advance. <laughs> so yeah, you got to wear a lot of different hats. Um, now, given how many characters and plot lines in the show are so very apart from their book arcs, it does sometimes get more difficult to find the parallels between the two. And in some cases, there's just no parallels at all. But that's actually less common than I think the average fan might think. Now, of course, you all are not average fans. And to be fair, sometimes the connection is just a nod. It's not really a parallel. It's just, hey, this is a little taste of what the book was doing, just to, just to show you. But even those nods can be revealing. Like, for example, Tyrion having his own secret room to bring girls to is not in the books, probably. He'd probably have thought of it by now. But it's kind of a nod to Tywin's hand tunnel that's connected to Shatayas, which, or at least that was widely believed to be Tywin's. So while, say, Book Alaria could never be guilty of what Show Alaria has done, that doesn't mean she can't be caught by an enemy and made to suffer horribly, or Cersei could give this punishment to someone else, invoking the Mad King in a different way on different subjects. So... Now, right now, I think some of you are probably thinking, Aziz, you're giving the show too much credit. But I actually think it's the opposite. <laughs> I'm suggesting that the show wants to use as much of George's ideas as they can, even if they have to bend and twist and turn it so that to make it fit. So what I'm saying is they want to try to borrow as much from the books as possible, even things that were maybe done in the earlier books. And that's not even a slam on D&D. That's just credit to George. It's hard to do what he's done, and why reinvent the wheel when, you know, it's already written, or, or already spinning. <laughs> so, that's my opening spiel. Normally, this is where I would introduce Radio Westeros, but hey, we've already done that because of the technical problem. So, let's say hello to Ashea right here. Hello. <laughs> I will not be talking that much because there is a lot to monitor right here. Yep, she's running production, she's got running all her images, and making sure this goes goes really well, but of course she's going to have some things to say as well. Uh, quick shout outs, of course, uh, Radio Westeros, you guys were on, uh, well, I keep thinking there's two of you here, <laughs> <laughs> but you guys were on Game of Owns on Sunday, which we've both done as well, so they're really um, trying to cover a lot of bases there, and I know that was a lot of fun for you guys, uh, so shout out to them. Yeah, Game of Owns are great, aren't they? I recommend to all of you uh, watching us to check out Game of Owns. Uh, we, we did a reaction you know, reaction um, podcast right after the episode, so that's, that's what it was. Very fresh, like right after. Yeah, that's quite, kind of a cool way to do it before you've really had time for things to settle. Sometimes those initial reactions, you really catch some interesting things. We were, um, Ashea and I were on Behind the Iron Throne, which also known as BTIT, <laughs> the best acronym of any... Uh, Game of Thrones oriented podcast. <laughs> yeah, that was a little Facebook Live interview, and they released it as a podcast as well, where it was, I mean, they just asked us a bunch of interview type questions, really. It was fun. Yeah. 
And also thanks to Bex from Watchers on the Wall for putting us first this week on the uh, video roundup, the uh, podcast and video roundup on Watchers on the Wall. That was fun. We're, we're happy to take the top spot. And also shout out to Daenerys and the Targaryens, the band from uh, Denver, who we've been listening to a lot. And Marcus, the bass player and sometimes singer, got in a, a question last time on our Monday episode with Sean. So I uh, always just showing love to the community and the community showing love back to us. And we always want to make sure that gets known. Anyone have any thoughts on the episode title? Yoke Boy, did you, did you think the episode title was pretty straightforward as far as how we saw it in advance or were you, was anything surprising to you? I, I just thought it was the poetic justice that, you know, Cersei administered, which we'll, we'll cover, cover later. Why, what was your take, Aziz? Well, pretty, yeah, pretty similar. I think, um, there weren't too many surprises except I wasn't really thinking of Olena as a queen, even though she's the queen of thorns and, and she gave a little bit of, you know, quote unquote justice there at the end to Jamie. So that was the surprising one to me, even though, especially because I thought of her and was like, nah, she's not a queen. And then, uh, oops, <laughs> that was pretty obvious actually in retrospect. But, um, yeah, I think it was, I think it was pretty straightforward, which is, not how the trailers and the lead up and all the you know things they told us about this episode ahead of time. That was very tricky. So that was kind of a little bit of a little bit of balance there. We did finally get to see Braun again, but he doesn't have any lines yet. Maybe that'll be next episode. Still no wall. We haven't seen that in a while. No Brotherhood yet, again, since the first episode. No Arya. We were kind of hoping for Gendry still, but we were more hopeful last episode and still no Gendry, but we're still holding out. Um, our co-writer Joe Buckley points out that Brienne has only had one line this season, basically, or roughly <laughs> one line. So we got to get more of her in there. Twitter user at Ocrush suggested that this episode had the theme of people being wrong about what they think they know. That's that's a pretty good catch. I, I didn't really see it that way, but that's uh, I mean, I do see it that way now that it's been suggested, but I didn't catch that at first. Definitely a lot of preconceived notions that are being torn down, especially between Danny and John, but also between a lot of other characters. So I think that was really important. And before we get into the meat of it, let us do a few shout-outs and a few announcements. Shouldn't take long. Of course, our three heads of the dragon, starting off with Lord Mark of House Joseph, the Snow in Winterfell, rider of Maslacartho, the white dragon with green scales, horns, wings, and talons. And Talanis the Talon, king of Gagasus, rider of Talarius, a red dragon with scales, horns, and talons of midnight black. And Jinx of House Lyre, Green Queen of the Rainwood, rumored daughter of a woods witch, rider of Erogenia, a sylphic albino dragon with amethyst eyes and opalescent wings. And of course, the history of Westeros' first sword, the ever-dangerous Jeff Gnarly, the Long Snapper. We had our first ever Saturday live stream. And the point of that was to do predictions and theories, to compartmentalize what we think is coming next, to look at the trailers and not have it you know, mixed in with the regular episode review so we can spend more time on both and focus on each one individually. It went really well. Um, and we learned something from doing it, which was that I didn't want it to be too long because I had to edit it the same day and get it up and, you know, you know, only a day and a half before the next Game of Thrones episode airs. So I need it to be up in podcast form so people can listen to it before the episode actually hits. But what I realized is I don't have to take the whole live stream and put it up so what we're going to do is occasionally we're going to go long we're going to we're going to be a little more liberal about going over our normal time slot to take more questions but not all those questions will make it into the podcast version so that that keeps the editing a little under control keeps the final product a little more manageable it'll still be long <laughs> but it won't be as insane as some of these last few have been getting because they've been getting a little too long 
And that's that. So if you want the whole experience, check out the live stream. But if you can't make that, you can only make the podcast later. We got you covered. And all the questions are still there on the video after the fact. It's just uh, they're not, not going to make the audio only version. I think that goes for, I think that covers all the announcements. We have some more, maybe we'll bring up some more things later. But for now, let's get going. Let's go to the north. And let's start off with, since Bran was a little awkward and creepy, let's balance that out with some humor. Because <laughs> <laughs> Bran has really become Jaden Smith, hasn't he? He's, uh... Yeah, you can see on the screen here. <laughs> <laughs> some Jaden Smith tweets along with Bran faces. Yes. Now who, now, who was it that was putting these together? I forget. Did we grab the person's name that did this? I, think I we... messed up and didn't do that. Yeah, we'll have to look that up and give them a shout but out later. The quotes are, how can mirrors be real if our eyes aren't real? And <laughs> trees are never sad. Look at them every once in a while. They're quite beautiful. And just like Jaden Smith, every word of every... Every le- every word is capitalized for the first letter. That's how he actually tweets. So, yeah. <laughs> so, Brand reminded us of Jaden Smith. And, yeah, it was a little strange. I mean, he's not really Bran anymore. And that's why we can also call him Jaden Smith or the three-eyed raven himself. What, um, I know Lady Gwyn had some takes here, Yoke Borg, and let you uh, handle those for her. Yeah, he was very robotic, wasn't he, with Sansa? And, you know, in contrast, she's very emotional. And then in the Godswood, he kind of does something of significance. Uh, Littlefinger had just been talking about, you know, how his, how he plays the game. And, he, you know, he's talking about thinking about every eventuality at the same time. And it's funny because soon after we see Bran and he's trying to explain to Sansa that more literally he can almost do, do what Littlefinger was describing. And uh, me and Lady Gwyn have wondered, you know, could could this be part of Littlefinger's downfall? I mean, what can Bran see? Uh, all the things that, you know, Littlefinger's got got in his kind of closet that Bran might be able to to see that, you know, he was instrumental in the downfall of their father. Does he already know? Has he looked for it? Will, will he stumble upon it? That's the question that that we were wondering about. Could could Bran's newfound wisdom actually, you know, feed into Sansa and the downfall of Littlefinger. Yeah, and I think that's a good, that's a a bunch of good points there. I think that Littlefinger is probably going to be a little concerned. And they gave themselves a bit of an out. You know, Bran says, I need to speak to John," (laughs) And, but he also talks about how it's all confusing to him now. He can't focus, you know, it's, it's, it's a haze and that enables them to have him miss things and to have it not be, you know, a plot hole. But, you know, still, and as much as it makes sense for him to bring up Sansa's wedding, I mean, it sort of makes sense because it happened in front of the heart tree. A few people mentioned that, including at Tony3483. Few people mentioned that to us that a major event in front of the Weirwood is maybe going to be a little more memorable to Bran. It's easier to, for him to see things that happen in front of a heart tree. But still, kind of awkward, huh, young boy? Yeah, I think choosing to remind Sansa there of, you know, they've just met after all this time, haven't they, in this emotional moment, and he, he starts talking about that. It was mm-hmm. tactless, and to me it shows how out of step with, you know, other people and friends and family Bran's mind has become, you know, like you said, he has changed. But on the other hand, it it might be nice to know that he's using his powers 
to kind of understand the suffering that people that were close to him have undergone. And like I said earlier, let's hope that he can use that for a good end somehow. Yeah, definitely. Definitely hoping for that. There's definitely some people that are wondering if this is going to be the beginning of him turning to the a darker side of things. Maybe, you know, some people even think maybe he'll become a new Knights King or something like that. I don't know if I'd go that far, but I think that when you lose your humanity a bit, you you lose sight of what matters to humans. And this his lack of tact is an example of that. I mean, he could – I don't think he's going to turn evil, but he could do some things that are dark, maybe because he doesn't realize the impact they would have and or how they would impact people, you know, personally. So um, not able – not being able to see the human aspect of things could – you know, take him some way, some wise towards that. And I think that does fit. Uh, something I should have mentioned uh, at, this, at the beginning, but not too late now. We, since we're doing this on Wednesday, we've had more time to think about things, but we've also had more time to collect questions from you guys. And of course, that means you guys have sent us a lot of questions. We have quite a few questions to handle. Most of the questions are going to be at the end. So that's, that's where most of them are going to be. But if you want to do a super chat, that'll get answered right away. So feel free to do that. And of course, as, as I've been, as we've been doing all year long, any super chat revenue we're splitting with Radio Westeros. Our co-writer, Joe Buckley, wants to bring up a few questions here. What's going to happen with Mira? I, I don't have a better guess than going back to Greywater Watch to talk to Helen Reed. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have any other ideas, and I think that seems likely. Do, does anyone else have another thought there? Or is yeah, that I think just... she's going to go back to Greywater Watch as much as I don't want that to happen. I want her to stay with Bran, but he's just so emotionless. Yeah, you could, you could, we could hope that at least she like has a conversation with Sansa or somebody, you know, just to talk about, <laughs> you know, what's happened to him. You know, why is he like this? And is, you know, Mira can maybe give a more... A better perspective, you know, a more r- r- rational, not head in the clouds, not seeing everything at once type of perspective. It might make a big difference. So it seems like there's a lot um, coming here, but there wasn't, you know, with Bran, it's really just getting started. So it's kind of hard to make a lot of guesses considering so much is possible. I mean, Bran's arc is so wide open, it feels like. So there's just a lot that we're going to have to wait to see what direction they take it in, given how many possibilities there are. With Sansa, on the other hand, outside of her interactions with Bran, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot more to say here. This is the first time we really see her taking charge, which is appropriate because it's the first time she's been in charge. And it seems like she's doing a very good job. She's having no trouble adjusting to being in, in front and issuing orders. And that's all good. And we get a rare example of logistics being dealt with, which is cool. We don't expect it anymore from the show, but we like it when it's there. <laughs> and... A lot of what's happening in this scene, too, is circling around Littlefinger. Obviously, the first thing that we noticed was the camera shot on Littlefinger when Maester Walken mentions the copies that Lewin kept. Now, I already have a different take than I had on this, that I had for this on Saturday. Or, sorry, mm-hmm. on Monday. On Monday, we talked about the copy. Because Walken says, Lewin kept a copy of all Raven Scrolls. However, I've since had time to go back and watch that scene. It's pretty easy to find because it's episode one, season one. Lewin hands Catelyn that letter with a seal on it. So unless you want to get crackpot and think Lewin, you know, pulled the seal off and then replaced it, which is pretty unlikely, there shouldn't be a copy. The thing is, even though uh, my 
take on the data is different because on Monday I was saying there should be a copy and now I'm saying no, there definitely isn't a copy because little Catelyn throws it in the fire as soon as she reads it. Littlefinger doesn't know that. And if he hears there is a copy, he might think that copy exists. He doesn't know what we know. He doesn't know Cat threw it in the fire. He doesn't know Lewin didn't make a, a copy of that one. So he does have something to worry about. And that is probably going to come up. We did a little more research on Maester Lewin, too, to see how long he's been around. Because we also want to ask the question, what other things might Littlefinger care about? It isn't just that he might be worried, which is totally on the table. He might be worried about what letter's in there. He might wonder what else is there for his own benefit. He might, there might be some things in that correspondence throughout all those years that he could get something from, some value, some sort of piece of information that he can use. So we shouldn't be thinking that it's only something that he could be worried about. Although that does seem maybe more likely. Either way, that's a lot of information and Littlefinger knows the value of information. So that's something to think about. Again, way too much of a wide open topic to to make a lot of guesses for because right now there's just so many options and by the way it's funny just as, as a side a little bit of trivia maester lewin delivered all cast children which i think we all knew and rob was born at river run i never really connected those dots that maester lewin was at river run when uh, rob was born and throughout most of the war which means ned brought him south and then he stayed there. So I guess throughout a lot of the war, there wasn't a maester at Winterfell or there was a different one. I don't know. They could have lost their maester and then they could have been like, oh, we'll take you, Maester Lewin, back up here. I don't know. Yeah, it's uh, interesting. Maybe he was stationed there before or they just had a couple of maesters at Riverrun at the time. Just goes to show we can't catch everything even after all these years. <laughs> so if you have suggestions for what other letters that might be in Lewin's records that Littlefinger might care about, either for benefit or for, you know, something he's worried about, hit us up. You can send us those suggestions, and we'll uh, mention some of the ones we think are the best or the most likely. Our friend Smokescreen from the channel Smokescreen suggests maybe, maybe there's some correspondence between Lyanna and Rhaegar. Maybe not between them. Maybe a correspondence about Rhaegar or about Lyanna, or maybe Rhaegar even bothered to send a letter to Lord Rickard to be, hey, by the way, I'm with your daughter, but don't get the wrong idea. You know, because a lot of people bl wonder. That's a big open question, right? Why did Rhaegar and Lyanna not tell anybody? It caused so much trouble that they ran off and told nobody. Well, maybe there's a small chance they did and it just didn't get out. It doesn't seem terribly likely, but I can't sit here and say it's impossible. And if the show is going to handle some things differently than the books, because I don't think something like that would happen in the books. I mean, it could, but I don't, it doesn't seem very likely. It, it, it could fit how the show is going to handle it. So we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, his, his little game theory speech to Sansa was interesting. I thought it was a little awkward, but I understood what they were trying to communicate there. But it seemed a little misplaced the way he just, it was just so, it was a lot of philosophy for just, hey, come here, let me talk to you for a second. Which is kind of how it seems. Like, Littlefinger pulls her off to the side and then feels like he's just going to say a couple words. And then he goes into this deep philosophical speech. <laughs> but anyway. <laughs> I liked Sansa letting on. Letting As on. John said, she's starting to let on. That was such a funny moment. She was yeah. there with a little finger. She, <laughs> she, you know, wasn't uh, being so nice to him. I see Gregor the Toasty suggesting letters from the Mad King demanding Rickard go south. That's a good point. That letter was sent. Rickard was ordered to come south to answer for Brandon's crimes. So he would have gotten a raven about that. Wonder You'd wonder if, if that letter's there. We may not learn anything from it, but it would be pretty cool to see that letter. The letter that... Demand, you know, from King Aerys demanding Rickard come south. That'd be really cool to, to see or to 
to have as like a piece of trivia or something. But for now, this northern scene is a lot of setup. Not a whole lot happened. It was, ooh, the letters. Ooh, you know, Bran's back. And, oh, Sansa's in charge. (laughs) And, oh, those breastplates need leather. (laughs) So it's really, I think, the the, the bulk of the action in the north is yet to come. Like we pointed out earlier, I mean, Brienne hasn't hardly had lines yet, you know. And Mm -hmm. all she's done is spar with Podrick, really. (laughs) And uh, so... I think that it's pretty clear that most of what we're seeing this first part of the season is dealing with the South, the politics and all that. And it seems like the Northern plot's going to matter more towards the end of the season. Mm-hmm. That's what the trailers seem to hint at, too. Without getting trailer spoilery, looking back on them now, after we've had a chance to see these first three episodes, quite a lot of what we've seen in the trailers has already come to pass, except for the majority of the Northern stuff. And some other big battle moments that haven't happened yet. But that, that's one way of saying that there's a lot the trailers haven't shown us about the final four episodes. So as, as spoilery as some of these first few episodes were, I think some of the, less, the later ones might not be. Except for that darn news about HBO being hacked again. So hopefully y'all are able to stay spoiler free. We're going to do our best to avoid links. We're not, I mean, links, leaks. We're certainly not going to talk about leaks on the show on here other than to point out that they exist. We are not going that way hmm. all right Even so. i'm not and i am pretty spoiler obsessed but it's I, I i read spoilers during the off season because i like to continue my enjoyment and, but then by the time it gets to this time of year i've pretty much forgotten everything which is nice <laughs> so I, I do not want to be spoiled anymore because i've forgotten it all <laughs> okay so i guess it's time for us to move on to dragonstone We'll start off Dragonstone with a really sweet shot. I really like the throne here. It's very creative. It's very cool looking. And I like how they pointed out that in the behind the behind the episode that Aegon the Conqueror wanted his throne room to, you know, inspire awe in people. And I thought it was pretty awesome. So yeah. right on. And nothing spoilery or particularly to talk about with it. I just think it's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it's another Another example of how amazing the scenery and details on images have been this this year. Hmm. There's a lot of great dialogue and acting in this scene. Um, I know, obviously, John and Danny meeting up is such a huge moment. And I know a lot of people were worried that they dropped the ball. And, you know, it wasn't perfect, but it was good. I really liked it. I thought both of the actors had to do different things. It's not their usual character that they're playing. John had to play a different kind of role, and so did Danny. They're both doing different kind of things than they usually do. And we got a lot of questions about Tyrion and Sansa and their marriage. And I'm glad that the show addressed that quickly and kind of put it to bed. They basically said that the marriage is null and void. Tyrion's like, I'm not pursuing it. I'm not claiming it. I didn't consummate it. You may, you didn't want to know that, John, but I'm telling you, <laughs> even that dialogue was funny. They managed to make that humorous, but it was important. It's, it's clear that that marriage is, it's as if it never happened, almost. You know, uh, I don't think anything is going to come of it, and that's that. Did you, I think, uh, do you have a take on that as well, Yoke Boy? Yeah, I, I agree. It was, you know, this, quite a burning issue, really, and I'm glad they addressed it. And like you said, they, they, they put it to bed very quickly. I didn't find it ambiguous. Tyrion has got no intention of claiming Sansa. He still clearly clearly respects her. That's one thing worth saying, as does John. And uh, typically in the scene, we see John not, not contemplating any possible rivalry with Sansa while he's away on his little jaunt to Dragonstone. To be clear on the legal side of it, someone would have to 
you know, force this marriage to continue for it to be recognized. And if Tyrion's not going to do that, well, if Danny takes over, she's not going to force her hand to marry, you know, Sansa. <laughs> so I don't think, yeah, I just don't think this is a thing at all anymore. Although it matters. They had this, What actually, I shouldn't say it doesn't matter. Their marriage doesn't matter. Their engagement doesn't matter. Their past does. Their past connection matters. The fact that Tyrion and Sansa parted on good terms, the fact that they have a bit of mutual respect for each other, that will matter, I think, down the road. Of course, we gotta love the titles. Masande reading the titles versus Davos. This is Jon Snow. It's great how Davos just really fits in so well in the North with his simplicity. <laughs> I think that's great. And I really love Danny's line to Tyrion. Did you just pass off your own statement as ancient wisdom? <laughs> just another example of the humor they were able to mix in there. Now, here's an image that a lot of people have been asking us about. A hat tip to Maid of Silver Spring, Ellen Evans, and several others who wanted us to talk about this. Too bad this wasn't Rhaegal. John is buzzed by Drogon. It's still a big deal because he says, I'm not a Stark. Right when this happens, a dragon comes right over his head. That, that certainly has a lot of meaning that I don't think I need to explain. But if it had been Rhaegal, it would have had even more meaning because then people would think, oh, that's his dragon. It's coming for him. Obviously, he's not going to ride Drogon. I mean, that seems pretty obvious anyway. And... Yeah, there's uh, Tyrion's back channeling. I think really took center stage here. He hat tip to poor Quentin and Brendan Beefish, who had a great conversation on Twitter discussing the fact that this is like Tyrion the way he used to be. He's finally back to the Tyrion that we first fell for in the early seasons. He's quick witted. He's great at reading people and the situation. He's good at understanding what people are missing and how to fill in the blanks for them, as he did with John and Danny. And he really made this whole thing work. So that was really good. It's it's good to see Tyrion being himself again instead of, you know, being a, a drunk and just like I think poor Quentin coined the phrase rather than just trying to do improv with Masande and Grey Worm. <laughs> so that's really nice. Really good to see John, uh, Tyrion be himself again. And John, boy, is he thick with politics. Just like Ned, he's so much like his non-father that it's amazing, even down to his the way he looks these days. And just after that dragon went over his head, all of Tyrion's arguments went over his head <laughs> and uh, had to be spelled out for him. What, what did you think about this, Yoke Boy? I really liked Tyrion's angle and his argument of why he, sh why she, she, Danny should give this dragon class mine over to John. He was saying that it, you know, it's meaningless to her. It doesn't have any value at all, but really valuable to him. And how can you argue with that? You know, something for free, creating value. It was a really good, good uh, way to kind of get between Danny and John and forge them together. So Tyrion's doing a great job as a hand, like you say. Back to back to old Tyrion. Yeah, eh? and. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's going to be an even more crucial bridge between these two characters. When 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 Danny realizes that this dragon glass does have value and it's going to be used, and that these things aren't grumpkins and snarks in the north, that John, you know, really did need this dragon glass to save the realm. I want to repeat a a, a joke from uh, Eliana, who is helping out as one of our chat mods and also is part of the Maester Monthly podcast, which is highly recommended. Their uh, Reddit podcast and. She made the joke that 
Of course, uh, Danny should. Uh, uh, sh of course, Danny doesn't believe in resurrection. She tried to bring back Khal Drogo, and look what happened. <laughs> mm -hmm. By the way, I saw people in the chat talking about Ghost and how it's too bad John didn't bring Ghost because he would have seemed a lot more formidable to her with this beast by his side. Yeah, that's true. It's no dragon, but it's something. It's absolutely yeah. That means something because if if Ghost is as large as Nymeria <laughs> by now, then woo, that's intimidating. I think the Dothraki would not have been cool with that wolf just hanging out be like nah sh this this isn't going anywhere near our queen so here we have some other questions here is daenerys going to lose faith for start and or start blaming Tyrion? well yeah maybe because this unsullied dicastery rock plan didn't go nearly as expected neither did the cray joy is taking the dornish joy taking the dornish went even worse <laughs> yeah he's basically zero for two really. yeah but if he brings john and but he did win some points with this alliance building with John and Danny. So maybe D Danny is realizing that someone else needs to be running the military side. Eliana let... says it wasn't meant to be a joke, by the way. <laughs> she thinks it's sad that that's the case. Oh, sorry for misinterpreting that then, Eliana. But still, it does apply whether it's a joke or whether it's real. It's still true. Danny has feelings about the concept of resurrection. You know, whether she thinks it's impossible because she saw it or because she saw how awful it went. It were... But all these angles apply. You know, you just got to pick which one you think is fits best. <sighs> And yeah, so Tyrion now, he's got to maybe make up for that, or maybe they just got to have someone else in charge of the military side because he, he's, he's got a lot of great takes, but Jamie's just outgeneraling him and Euron is outgeneraling him. They're just, Tyrion's lack of experience is really showing and they need someone who knows what they're doing a little more. Uh, Tyrion is a little bit miscast in this role. He's better at these, uh, you know, with the, in these political scenes and in, you know, in the courtroom, things like that. So after that's all cleared up, John and Danny, you know, have a conversation that's a lot less contentious than before. Now that they have some common ground and Tyrion is smoothed away, you can see there's mutual respect, mutual attitudes. Um, you know, the, I think that the groundwork is there for them to have common ground on a lot of things because they have so much in common. What do you think, um, Yoke Boy, as a book reader, you had some thoughts here about some things that they have in common? I, no, I wanted, I wanted to just bring up something really nerdy. Forgive me. Go for it. But, um, That's John, a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if anyone else caught this, but John claimed that Ares had his grandfather and his uncle burned alive. Oh, yeah. And I went and checked it. <laughs> yeah, okay. So in book canon, just to be a nerd like I am, <laughs> the uncle is Brandon, and he was in fact strangled. He was watching... Rickard burn alive in his armor and he was kind of you know in this enormous pain uh, and Brandon was strapped to a device that Ares imported from Mia and the more he tried to save his father the more it strangled him and that that's actually how he died oh, yeah. I don't know why they changed I don't know if it was a mistake or they just changed it because it, the flow of the dialogue was better you know John could make more of a point of you know Ares being a pyromaniac I don't know yeah and as far as how they react to each other on a personal level, I think politically things are lining up. They're starting to line up. You know, there's there's still some problems, of course. Obviously, the major problem being Danny wants the North and John's like, nah. And but on the personal side, yeah, there wasn't uh, they didn't force the romance angle that if it's going to happen, it's going to de develop more slowly. But the groundwork is there. Like I said, just like the groundwork is there for the politics, the groundwork of their uh, from them to respect each other, which is obviously important in a relationship, mutual respect. So they're not just forced into some political marriage, which it might be. It may end up being they kind of have to marry because of political circumstances. As the way things are going, 
both of them have everything else going poorly. <laughs> so them teaming up just makes a lot of sense from that regard. And Danny has that kind of gaze after him. And Kit points out, you know, especially the way he looks when he walks in and sees her for the first time. He's kind of like a little bit deer in the headlights. And and Kit Harrington behind the scenes says, yeah, I mean, at John's age, it's essentially impossible for him. Uh, a red-butted straight male who sees Daenerys in her glory and how beautiful she is. And to not have that matter a little bit. You know, he's not like head over heels or he's not like Gaga, like his eyes popping out like, oh, I'm in love. But it had an impact. He noticed, <laughs> you know, he noticed that she's hot. <laughs> also, I just want to point out, John wouldn't have seen a lot of blondes, let alone silver blonde hair like Daenerys. She's That's definitely a striking. A few people, like he saw the queen, he saw Cersei when she came to King's yeah. Landing and maybe a few others. But yeah, there's not blondes in the north. I mean, he saw Val in the books. In the books he did. And that's, here. that's an interesting thing. By the way, that's why, why there's a lot of Val theories out there. Uh, as Val, maybe not. Because I don't know of any other blonde wildlings. You know, I think <laughs> Val might be blonde also. But yeah. <laughs> so that is really something. We have a, here's a question from Anthony Gonzalez that I thought was worth sticking in here because it's so on point. The meeting between Danny and John, one thing important was missing. They're so caught up in the North. What about the fact that the Vale is supporting the Northmen and John, which means Littlefinger is involved considering Lysa is dead. You would think that that would be a major sticking point for Tyrion and Varys to both let John know some things about Littlefinger and even let their queen Daenerys know. He's the biggest snake in the realm. Yeah, you know, I think maybe they, they couldn't cover everything in this episode and John didn't leave Dragonstone yet. So there's still time for him to have conversations about Littlefinger, to hear, to maybe get a close up with the dragon, things like that. So... There's definitely things they haven't covered, but I wouldn't say it's too late. You know, they can talk about that later. I don't know that everyone else knows has, I mean, Tyrion and Varys and Danny certainly. I don't know if they've even put that together yet. If they realize Littlefinger is there, they, they understand mm -hmm. the veil is with him, but they may not realize, you know, exactly what's happening, but they should. That shouldn't go unspoken, um, at least not for long. So I hope they address that because it would be an oversight if they don't. Another important part of the conversation between John and Danny, I think that's really, really important, is that they both have this attitude about children not being blamed for actions of their parents, which John has come farther in that thinking, which is funny because Danny's the one who brings it up. Because Danny hasn't yet thought to apply that to, you know, her own father and the vows that she's trying to enforce on John. <laughs> it's like, well, if you're not guilty of your father's crimes, why am I bound to your father's oaths, you know, or to people who took an oath to your father? And that's a really strong point. Danny probably is going to have to wrestle with that a little bit. She might have to eventually realize, you know what, he's right. I'm not being consistent on this. I don't know if she will, but I, I think it's a fair conclusion. Yeah, I mean, what's she going to do? Be like, okay, every generation you have to re-come and swear. I mean, that's what she would have to say, I guess. Which is what happens. Whenever yeah. the queen, whenever there's a new king, you know, everyone comes and yeah. kneels before the new king. So, But they do it for a reason. Yes. Because they already did it. So they're clearly saying there's some weight behind that previous Absolutely. It, it's, there's, there's truth on both sides of the argument, but both of them are trying to simplify it, I mm -hmm. think. And neither simplification is, is fully addresses the problem. And later, Tyrion mentions that luckily none of us are like our fathers. <laughs> and, uh, that stands out as well, really well. And this uh, as a side piece of information along with all this. Both of them like the attention to innocence. Both of them seem to care about at least maybe don't care about protecting all the innocent lives, but they do spare thoughts for the common born, whereas someone like Cersei doesn't care whatsoever as long as they're not a threat, as long as they're quiet. So 
Yuck boy, take take over here because Lady Gwyn had something cool to say. <laughs> yeah, she saw it as a, a kind of RLJ nod of sorts uh, with Danny's passionate speech about Robert sending assassins to kill her in her cradle and wondering if Ned Stark was complicit in trying to kill a, kill a baby. In fact, all along, as we know, Ned was protecting a Targaryen baby from Robert. That was... You know, we know from the books, this is one of the things that's haunted him. It's one of his, the biggest issues in his whole life. And he's been for a lot. Her perspective in, in the show really underlines why there was a need for Ned to do this. And incidentally, uh, Danny later actually mentions Rhaegar by name to John. So it's a, a nice little touch that serves to remind the kind of casual viewers who Rhaegar is. Her elder brother, and of course, John's father. Yeah, so if, if Danny ever pieces all that together, she will realize that what you're saying that that Ned not only didn't have anything to do with coming for her, but he was totally against what was done to her family and was against what Robert wanted to do to her, you know, in season one. So that, if she learns all that, that's huge. And why hasn't Varus told her? Varus wasn't in the throne room when this scene happened. That's his out for now. But it just makes me even more suspicious about Varus. Like, I don't have a, a great reason to think Varus is going to betray Danny. It's just because I don't know who he would betray her for. On the same hand, Ra Varus absolutely is not on Danny's side in the books. And if we, so we... It, it, Surprise, it, young Griff. <laughs> I'm joking. I'm definitely joking. But... So it just keeps coming back. So I just can't help but think about the possibility that Varus would betray Danny. And... You know, as badly as things have gone so far <laughs> for Danny's military angles, it would, if it comes out later that Varus was giving information to Cersei, it would certainly explain how things have, help explain why things have gone so badly for Danny militarily so far, and why Euron always seems to be at the right place at the right time. That would, that would clear up a lot of that, even though I think it's not, doesn't need that to make sense. Uh, Joe Buckley points out this is the first instance Danny has had a Westerosi lord like defying her to her face, and but it's it's that's that's a good point. It's also the first Westerosi lord or lord at all of any kind basically that she's run into who genuinely shares a lot of her attitudes about how to rule and how to treat people and to you know he's not ambitious he cares about ruling so that's a big difference from from um her perspective a lot of things for her to think about we have a super chat from darby hallman thanks darby how do you think a book meeting between J danny and john will be different sorry if you mentioned it already currently studying for finals well good luck with your finals there glad we can uh, help you pass the time i think one we won't have to deal with hbo thinking about the budget so like maybe ghost is there it's like a small example that the power dynamics will be different i think that's a good point. There might be a lot. John might come with a much larger group than just Davos. He might yeah. have Ghost and a bunch of other people. Mm -hmm. It may not happen on Dragonstone. Yeah. You know, there's a lot. Of, it's, it's really hard to say how, where it will happen, but it could be Dragonstone. I think it would go somewhat similarly in that they don't just fall in love right away or anything like that. They don't. The idea of marriage is still, if it ever happens, is still far away. It's not something that gets brought up early. And they start to interact based on common personality traits and common um, leadership styles. And maybe even with Tyrion, I think the Tyr Tyrion aspect is probably still going to be in place. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Varys won't, isn't so likely to be around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, I see um, 
John should enter the room. Danny is in with whilst riding on. Yeah, he should ride ghost <laughs> into her throne room. <laughs> that would be. Now that's an entrance. And this one of the same problems John will face in the books is convincing people that the White Walkers are real. I don't think there's going to be a boss other Night King in the book. If there is, we have seen nothing to hint at that. And but still, same problem. He doesn't. It doesn't matter if there's a boss other or not. As far as the problem of convincing people that this is real, convincing people that there's armies of the dead walking around, mm-hmm. that's just a problem for both book and show. John and I love his acting here. The way he just kind of gets really frustrated and just doesn't know what to do about it. We see. I see a super chat here from Urban Flowerpot. Thanks, Urban Flowerpot. We don't see a question attached, but Ashea will keep an eye out for it. We'll answer it right away once it gets in there. Yeah, so John just kind of losing it over his inability to convince people and him despairing over how difficult it's going to be. Like, he realizes that, why would anyone believe this? And I think that same problem will happen in the books. I think that it's going to be, people just won't believe it. It's just too much to accept. Like Tyrion says, our minds were made for simpler problems. It's almost a relief to face a familiar monster like Cersei. In fact, Tyrion himself even plays out the truth of his own words by when um, people talk about the whole knife in the heart thing. And they were, and, and Tyrion just says, oh, it was just a figure of speech. Because <laughs> to him, it's totally outside the realm of possibility. The question from Urban Flowerpot is, people are talking a lot about the Mad Queen being Danny or Cersei. Thoughts? Show versus book. Well, I think so far in the show, it's clearly Cersei. <laughs> the thing she's doing, we'll get to some of the details later, but some of the stuff is just right out there. But it doesn't have to be both. It doesn't have to be one or the other either, does it? I think it could be some of both. Right now, though. I think, I mean, I think... Cersei is living up to the Mad Queen, whereas Daenerys is the fear of it, of of her turning into that, whereas I don't think she actually is going to be like that. Especially in the book, because her reputation preceding her from Essos is worse than her book, or than her show reputation. And her show reputation from the East is bad. I mean, the way Cersei spelled it out, you know, consorts with savages, consorts with eunuchs, burned, you know, the nobles over in Marine, but she didn't kill Quentin Martell. I mean, she didn't actually kill Quentin Martell anyway, but in Dorne, they're going to hear that and they're going to blame her. Uh, so Dorne is going to be problematic for Daenerys. Probably at least some parts of Dorne, if not large parts of Dorne, are not going to be friendly to her because of the, the thing with Quentin, unless, you know, Archibald, Ironwood, and Garrus Drinkwater can maybe smooth that over and, and spread the truth. But the problem is Archibald and Garrus are hundreds of leagues from Westeros and the news of Daenerys being, you know, the Mad Queen's daughter has already reached there and the, the water is already spoiled <laughs> in that regard. It's, it's hard to undo a rumor that's already spread, even with the truth. So, yes, big, big problem for Daenerys, her reputation, even though it's mostly undeserved. <laughs> that's a similar aspect here. You know what I thought, um, back to the Night King stuff with with John. Uh, my biggest disappointment was just I really wanted him to start describing them. You know, like, he's got kind of blue skin and spikes on his head. Like, well, just I just really wanted that conversation to happen. <laughs> that would have been amazing. <laughs> Maybe that's coming next episode. They'll finally have some drink. Like, Tyrion, we haven't seen Tyrion have a drink of wine this season yet. He needs to have a drink with John and try to loosen him up a little bit. Maybe then he's like... Dude, let me tell you what the Night's King looks like. It's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, and so Danny doesn't fully believe what she's told, even though she has dragons and she's seen some crazy things herself. Uh, this, uh, this, this concept of the Night's King. She didn't say she didn't believe either, to be fair. She just didn't answer. John said, do you believe me? Or, or so you believe me? And Danny's like, 
better get to work, Jon Snow. <laughs> so that was neither a yes nor a no. Definitely. No, I think definitely. it was definitely her realizing that she was being foolish to just pretend that this was impossible when she actually birthed dragons into the world. <laughs> she <laughs> yeah. realized that. Which is which is probably why they didn't want to try to convince her of that John rose from the dead either. On top of everything yeah. else, right? Yoko, what do you think about about why they're concealing John's death? Well, John's bringing news about an army of undead who are threatening Westeros, and you know, supposedly the the ultimate enemy. So it would be very bad timing to say, you know, P.S. Daenerys happened to me too. You know. <laughs> Here I am. <laughs> I was dead. Are you, are you a spy for them? <laughs> I, I'm sure that John yeah. doesn't want, you know, it, the, the more, he, it's beyond his control because a lot of people know know about it, you know, from the Night's Watch. Word gets around, but John will be wanting to control that information, you know, as much as possible, really, because it it's not something, uh, you know, at this stage that you you really want to be, you know, he's got a lot in common with this enemy that he's trying to he's, he's yeah. trying to garner troops against. <laughs> Any chance it actually helps in the long run? Once she believes it, and if she if she, if, she, if she can be convinced it's possible, she can say, "Hey, you know what? I was burned alive and walked right out." So, hey, we have that in common too. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about her military situation, though. There's a lot. This this scene had a lot of aspects to it, and where she's at milita- militarily is really important. It seems pretty clear now. At the beginning of the season, and even last season, and well before that even, it's it became pretty clear that Daenerys was going to be arriving in Westeros with this just giant army that is really powerful. And now the scales have been really tipped back in the other way. Cersei has all these things going her way, and she's got all these talented commanders that are just doing all the right things. And her commanders are not doing very well at all. Her soul, a lot of, She's lost a lot of her army, lost seems like basically all her navy now and that's pretty huge so it looks like um what olena was saying is coming back around isn't it your boy yeah last week olena advised danny that she should be a dragon and at that time in danny's position you know you could have discarded that as kind of you know shit stirring or whatever you want olena trying to get what she wants but now that advice I'm not sure if it looks like valuable advice, but it looks like advice that she's going to have to take, you know, and you know what, what we what you were saying before, perhaps mm. she will have to take on a, a little bit of the, the old kind of mad queen to get what she wants. She, she, she might have to kind of let her, let her guard down and sod it, you know, to my reputation. I, I, I have got to get on a dragon and roast people alive. If I'm going to be Cersei, she's in that position now. And unfortunately for her, that is going to make her even more like the Mad Queen. It's going to make her reputation worse in some circles, even as she, even if it results in her winning military victories, it will make her ruling afterwards harder. It'll make it harder for her to to create a coalition after the fact. So it's uh, damned if you do, damned if you don't. <laughs> and we also get a little interesting line about her two things here that happen when she's asking expressing frustration about herself going out in the field first of all that explains a lot we have a lot of people that have asked us a bunch of questions about why hasn't danny gone out scouting why hasn't she you know look went out looking for Euron ships well Tyrion and Varys and others have been pretty adamant that she not risk herself at all they point out in the scene it's a good short bit of dialogue to explain it just saying nope one arrow yes your dragons could survive easily 
but all it takes is one arrow in the right place and you're out and we can't have that. We can't lose you. That's quickly becoming not true. They're going to have to, she's going to have to get out there and risk herself because things are going so badly. I can understand why they wanted to do that in the first place, but it's, it's definitely backfiring. But Danny then expresses that, what could they do to my dragons? So this to me is a small, maybe not a plot hole, but it could, it will be a plot hole if Tyrion doesn't explain this more to her later. Tyrion knows how dragons can be killed, which is what Kyburn is using. He's using historically known methods to shoot down dragons. This is something Tyrion should be aware of. And it really... I liked Sean's point there when he said, well, Tyrion wouldn't bring it up to her because it's not the time to bring it up to her right then. And I like, it made me laugh out loud during your guys' recording on Monday when Sean <laughs> said, imagine if Danny, if, if he'd said that to her and Danny goes, not my dragons. <laughs> <laughs> he's got to tell her like, okay, well, actually. That, that was the kind of mood that she was in right then. I <laughs> yeah. think she was in her full power. So as, yeah, as Hand of the King, Tyrion has to know when the right time to broach certain subjects <laughs> is. So uh, we can give them a pass. For now, if they never bring that up, hmm, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll criticize them for that. So we'll have a little more on some of these potentials and what Danny might do next on Saturday because... Yeah, because there was stuff in the trailer for next episode. There's stuff in the trailer, yes. We have to talk about. Absolutely. So we're not going to spoil that now, but if you want us to talk, hear us talk about it, Saturday, 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Standard, 6 o'clock General uh, Greenwich Mean Time, or General. General Time. <laughs> general Time, no. Greenwich Mean Time. So, Theon is another topic. He hasn't shown up yet. I mean, he showed up in the water. They scooped him out of the water. He hasn't, you know, made it back to Dragonstone, assuming he will go there. Uh, Yuck Boy, you had some takes here. Yeah, the the whole point for me of Theon's character is that, you know, he, he never fit in anywhere. He was never a Stark, even though he was their ward and he, he was part of the family. And then he couldn't integrate with the Ironborn. So this has really been at the you know the the, the beating heart of of what's driven his plot along. So he might have given his kind of pound of flesh for his sins, but still Theon does not belong anywhere. And you saw the Ironborn in their disgust of him. I, I said this last week. You know, I've thought about Theon, and you know, I'm, I'm going to go for the for the Night's Watch. He could he could return to Dragonstone. Be confronted with John, who's not going to be happy with him. My dear, maybe John can hand him over to the Night's Watch because we need important characters at the wall for you know when the Night's King arrives. Theon would be a good addition, I think. Yeah, it's, and it's foreshadowed in the book, like you said. He considers doing it back, in, you know, with Lewin, and uh, he's an archer, <laughs> and you know, with all the emphasis on archery that's needed, Theon could even be like a. Hey, maybe he leads a group of archers, you know, maybe him and some of these youngsters that are training become uh, his little squadron. That's uh, pretty far in advance, but we could hope for something like that. Yeah, and, and Joe Buckley points out that it's going to be hard for him to find a place now amongst the Ironborn. We already see in that brief scene, the one thing that Theon gets is disgust. His the, his fellow Ironborn expect expected him to die aside Yara, you know? Mm -hmm. They said, she didn't get away and you did. That shouldn't be possible. So that's a good point. That you, That's the kind of treatment he should expect. Do you guys think that Yara is totally doomed, going to die, or do you think there's any chance that she gets saved, she gets rescued? As long as she's alive, there's a chance. That's yeah, my take, yeah, you know? <laughs> I don't know why Yara would leave her alive except to torture her, and I hope we don't have to see that, because there's been enough torture in this show. And... Although it would fit his character rather well. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I, I used to think she was pretty doomed, but as you know, she wasn't strewn up on, on Silence's prow or anything like that. What, what do you think, Yoko? Do you think there's a chance for her? 
Well, it's strange, isn't it? I mean, if she was going to die, they could they could have killed her by now, couldn't they? They, they usually don't mi- mince around with these things. They could have killed her in the naval battle. They've kept yeah. her alive, whether that's because something horrendous is coming or that she's got hope. It's like two polars, isn't it? But it, it's going to be one of those things. We had a super chat from Stephen Hill, which I believe is Sir Stephen, Bastard of the Crag. And he asked, do you think John's relationship with Maester Eamon will come into play? Well, it seems like a good thing for him to bring up. I mean, he doesn't he doesn't have any corroborating evidence that Maester Eamon liked him, but it shouldn't be hard to prove that Maester Eamon was Maester while John was there. And while John was elected Lord Commander under while Maester Eamon was alive. That should say something to Danny that her yeah, I mean I, I think it's notable that I don't think how would Danny know anything about him? Like maybe maybe Viserys said, Hey, we actually do have another Targaryen alive, but I don't know that she knew that or would know that. That's true. She it, it should be in a record somewhere, though. Maester Eamon, you yeah. know, being a Targaryen, there should be a book that they can point to that says, look, he was real. This is Egg's, uh, you know, Egg's older brother. <laughs> Egg on the fifth's older brother. Blah, blah, blah. So that, 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 that could really help. That's something they could smooth over, you know, help pave their way for that relationship to uh, function. But there's still more in Dragonstone. You know, there's so many important characters. This is the thing about having so many important characters in one location is a lot of <laughs> big things happen. And this is actually, even though it's a small scene, I think it has very large book implications. And I'm not even talking about the potential for Varys to turn on Danny. Um, Yoke Boy, Lady Gwyn had some great notes here that um, we're going to obviously have you take here. Yeah, the, the, there was the there was the kind of indirect reference to their slave pasts. Yes. I'm not sure in the show how, how far they went into Mel's kind of... I, th- I think she has mentioned it, in, actually. But, you know, in the books, we get her POV and then it's revealed she was Melanie Lot 7, mm-hmm. wasn't yes. she? She was, uh, from what it appears, she was a slave child and there was a woman calling her. It was probably a mother. They were split apart. It sounds, you know, a great, a great injustice was done early on in, in Mel's life. And, um, yeah, it's, it's kind of alluded to in this conversation with Varys. He's also, also had it rather rough. Also of note is is that Mel called John and Danny the meeting of ice and fire, you know, which is very well and it makes a lot of sense. But, I, you know, I wouldn't forget that John with the secret heritage of RLJ, you know, the biggest character mystery in this in these books is in himself the meeting of ice and fire. And I, I thought it was interesting, you know, you know, what is ice and fire? Does it refer to John or, or is this it? The Danny and John meeting? Who knows? Yeah, that was a big line, wasn't it? Melisandre actually saying, bringing ice and fire together. It was like, whoa, hey, hold on, whoa. <laughs> that reminds me of a book. <laughs> and yeah, super chat. Super chat from, no, from no uh, The Chicken oh, Dance. Yeah. So he, it says, do you think, do you guys think Danny will use Sam's testimony of Aemon stating Daenerys is the prince that was promised as confirmation of Melisandre's hailing of her? Ooh. Was that in the show? I think that's book only, but... Um, it's relevant still. It's still relevant. I, I, it's, I was, yeah. was trying to remember. It's so hard to... Not mix them up. <laughs> yeah, I think that's it's definitely in a feast for crows. Not long before Aemon dies, and he's he he he's that's that's at the same point that he realizes about the error in translation. The same thing that Masande points out. It's this. It's basically the same thing that uh, it's prince or princess that was promised. And 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 Maester Aemon says the dragons prove it's her. The dragons prove it. You know, because no one, I mean, even John, as much as the. La, you know, last year slash Azor Ahai, a lot of it fits him pretty well. He does not, he hasn't birthed dragons from stone, and that's a pretty huge thing that Daenerys has done. Mm-hmm. So, what about Melisandre's words there? That was 
the only time we've ever really seen Varus speechless other than when, you know, he was threatened. <laughs> but this was sort of threatening um, in an indirect way, wasn't it? This I have to die in this strange country, as do you. That was, whoa, that was, that was stunning. Yeah, I, I really like it. I, I like these kind of little elements of prophecy. It's not like a full-blown book prophecy, but Melisandre does sometimes drop in these kind of um, things that she's probably seen in the flames, okay? So this her words that they'll both die in Westeros, to me it seemed like bad news for Varys, okay? Because he's been told you're going to die. <laughs> However, perhaps there, there was a kind of element of pride in the way Mel mentioned herself dying. Like she's kind of like, hey, you're going to die, I'm going to die. I thought she was, a, you know, maybe a bit proud. Maybe she sees herself as having a duty, mm. you know, and that's... And maybe she's saying the same about him, you think? Oh, maybe, but I, I think that perhaps Mel, you know, thinks that she's going to die, you know, in some kind of great honor. She's going to do something really important in her own mind, you know. I'm going to maybe self-sacrificial, you know. I'm going to be there when the Night's King's there. I'm going to give my life. I know that mm. I die there. That, that's how I interpreted it. Joe Buckley wonders if this might be... A place for us to get an Essos POV. Maybe Melisandre will go all the way to Volantis or to Essos in the books. And if so, maybe she'll be a lingering, she'll have a, we'll actually have a point of view in Essos when everyone else has gone back to Westeros or to Westeros, which is interesting. Because I certainly don't expect us to see Melisandre's arc in Volantis. I expect she'll just show back up and, well, let's, let's talk about what she might do. I think I've got some, some theories here, at least one major theory, and that is, Something we talked about a lot in the books, a big to-do is likely to occur in the books with the Faith of the Seven, especially as they're getting really powerful again. And Daenerys is importing a lot of R'hllor worshippers, and those two shouldn't get along. You know, fanatics of two different religions, that, that doesn't ever go well, does it? Uh, so I think that might be, for a while, so when, when Melisandre said that line, I was thinking, ah, she's going to bring over more red priests, more worshippers, more people for Danny. But now it seems like there's a more immediate need for ships and a big part you know danny's lost her navy how does she even get the dithraki to the mainland now i mean i don't even know if she has the the, the naval capacity for that so that might be what melisandre is going to do is to bring the volunteer fleet or just some ships it doesn't have to be the volunteer fleet in the books the volunteer fleet is full is run by slaves and so it's widely believed that those slaves might flip and go fight for danny instead and if that's the case, then you've got the Volantine fleet with Danny for the books. And then this would be hitting that same milestone if, if Melisandre is going back to Volantis to do that. It was notable that she said Volantis, too. When she said Volantis, I immediately thought of the Volantine fleet. So that's uh, that's my take there. And I don't have any other ideas. So it's not so maybe I'm giving too much weight to this theory because I have no other theories. <laughs> but it also feels like a good theory to me. So if you have other ideas for what you think... Melisandre is going to do in Volantis. Definitely hit us up. We are open to other theories. I only have this one right now. But also, we're glad she's coming back, aren't we, Yuck Boy? <laughs> we like Melisandre. Yep. Glad she's not gone. I'm team. Bring Kinvara with you. <laughs> yeah, that'd be cool. She's always been an endgame player, and it would be a shame if she, you know, she left the story before kind of confronting this you know, enemy that she's done all kinds of things to try and fight, you know. All right. A couple of questions here. Uh, Desolation Row asks, why didn't Tyrion find it at all curious that Jon had deserted the Night's Watch? 
You know, with everything else going on and all these other things they have yet to talk about, you know, they haven't they haven't talked about Theon, they haven't talked about Ghost, they haven't talked about a lot of things. I think there's a lot they didn't talk about, and I also think as a Southerner, he just would have less like respect, and not, you know, he would it wouldn't be on his mind as highly as other things. Yeah, it might occur to him, but I don't, I don't yeah. have a problem with him not not occurring to him yet. Yeah. Um, Whereas so, if, for instance. You know, he was from a northern house. I would, ex- I would be, you know, I would be expecting them to bring yeah. it up pretty early. But I think even when they do find it out, it'll probably just be a curiosity. They'll be like, oh, yeah, you guys did your thing. You named John King in the North. You know, you broke tradition. Oh, well, you know, that's uh, there's never been a sitting queen of Westeros either until Cersei. So there's all traditions are being broken all over the place. <laughs> I don't think uh, Tyrion and Danny, as much as they're going to be changing some things, I don't think that would bother them. But they might be curious about it. Uh, the Snow and Winterfell. Do you think that they're going to keep having Danny control all three dragons to move things along, or will the dragon have three heads? Uh, I, my, I have a theory that Tyrion will get a dragon at the end of the season, so either the other dragon won't be have a rider yet. I think John, if he rides a dragon, which I think pretty likely won't happen until next season. But that's just a pure. That's pretty much pure guesswork, and just kind of how I feel like the story pacing is going. But. I do. In the meantime, yeah, I think that in the short term, there won't be any other riders and that they'll just follow her. Kind of like they did at the end of the battle last year. They just broke out of prison when they needed to, right? When Daenerys was flying above. So they kind of felt it. So I think they'll just keep following Drogon around. Any other different takes on that? Or is that, does anyone else think there'll be a dragon rider, another dragon rider sooner? No, I th- I think for, for the time being... They'll just kind of do their own thing, you know, whether they yeah. whether they're kind of connected mentally and they, you know, they can identify who knows how, you know, intelligent they are. I think George has said they're about as intelligent as dogs, so they might be able to kind of sniff out the enemy, so to speak. Lord Gregor the Toasty says that would mean no dragons die. That's a good point because we do think, I think it's not unlikely that a dragon dies this year. That would also... I don't think a dragon has to, I don't think that not having a rider means a dragon doesn't die. No, but it does kind of main the two things. The two theories have to be, you know, considered alongside each other. You know, yeah. like when they're going to be ridden versus when one or more might die. Or yeah, not. I mean, I think let's say a dragon dies this season, then it makes sense to me that then there's still one dragon for for John or whoever else to ride. So, hmm. super okay. chat from Meredith Glassberg. Thanks, Meredith. Do you think John or Davos gives Danny the strategy that will lead to her next military move, which has been telegraphed in the promos? They have to know how Jamie would return to King's Landing. Yeah, um, maybe. It seems like they're probably going to start getting... I would think that this is going to be part of how, without getting into spoilers, I would think that because John, uh, Danny keeps losing in, out in the field and John and Davos have military experience, they she might start to involve them that way to try to build their alliance more by seeing what kind of advice they have to see how useful they are. And if they start taking advice, if they start giving advice... Not only would that maybe bring them a little close together, but it might get them better advice. What I'm wondering about is how they're communicating with each other. Because mm. one, we don't really see them using ravens ever, Daenerys and her SOC crew. And two, we don't like, there's no maester, I assume, at Castle Rock because they emptied it out and took everything out. So they, they're, they would definitely make sure there were no ravens or anything like that. Maybe Grey Worm can go to Blanisport or can go somewhere pretty close to send a raven. And maybe Olena was able to send one off from Highgarden beforehand. But I'm really worried about the, the traveling of information here. Yeah, that's a good point. We don't know how information is going to spread. The show can kind of do what they want with that because they can always have one person get a raven while someone else doesn't. Well, which means they can keep one person in the dark while someone else knows. A lot of ways for them to do that. 
And Jacob S. points out that Tyrion sent the raven to Jon in the last episode. Ah, so of course, we would, of course we would expect Tyrion, though, to have the ability to do that. I'm just, no, I, I'm just picturing the Unsullied with a bunch of ravens, and I'm not sure how that works out. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that's a very good point. Very much worth considering. Yeah, this is it's, issues of communication and timing are always important, even when the show plays with those things. They still end up mattering a lot, even uh, if we can't predict how they'll go down. And I do think, in general, as an overall topic... Daenerys and her lack of good military leadership is a good reason why she'll bond more with Jon and her side or his side because they have that. They have inspiring leaders, maybe some leaders who make mistakes still, but guys who have military experience who are great leaders in the field, that kind of thing. We have, I think we already answered how we yeah. think John and Danny will meet in the books. That's another question from the Snow and Winterfell. I believe we covered that already. We answered that, but Yoke Boy didn't give an answer if he just thinks it's going to be fairly similar or fairly different or anything. Yeah. Not to put you on the spot, but I don't know if you have any extra thoughts on that, Yoke Boy. No, I, you know, I think it could be similar. You know, I, I, I don't have anything original to say. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let us do... It's about the halfway point. We'll probably go over two hours, though the podcast itself, I may cut out some of the questions from the end to make it more manageable. Um, so let me do our mid-roll stuff here. Got some shout-outs. I want to give thanks to our sellsword captains this time. And that group includes... Oh, where'd they go? Sellsword captains, always sneaky. Peter Blaze of the Emerald Isle, captain of the Werewood Wanderers, to long lives, quick deaths, cold beer, and warm women. Dagron, Marshal of the Axe, Captain of the Red Tide. Resistance is futile. Garion Pike is wielder of Grave Embrace, a Valyrian steel axe. He's Captain of the Iron Wave. Iron's Kiss is eternal. Chiron Callsbane is Captain of the Stone Shields. The torrent breaks upon the stone. Captain Kithic Deadeye is of the Scarlet Longbows, whose motto is Pierced by Darkness. Caribou Shard is Captain of the Walking Drum. Their motto is Yol Bolsan, which is May There Be a Road. Lady Lajara Dajo is the Iron Lily, Master Archer, Castellan of the Summer Island Keep Arboreal Point, Captain of the All-Female Wailing Widows. Women and Children First is their motto. Cody the Crimson is Bastard of Bracken, Captain of the Red Waste Exiles and Recruiter of the Free Folk. Also, thanks to Kohol Koei, our Blood Rider, Master of the Bow, and Avenger of those who do injustice to those who deserve justice. Excellent, excellent. All right. Uh, thanks to those, thanks to all, anyone who supports us on Patreon, anyone who shows up to our live streams, anyone who likes and subscribes and supports History of Westeros and Radio Westeros in all the different ways you can do that by following us on social media and by word of mouth and all those fun things. We very much appreciate it and we very much rely on it. Let's talk about the Citadel, shall we? The Citadel, yeah, I wasn't super jazzed with the resolution of the Grayscale plot here. It was a little too simple. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they even portrayed it as simple, didn't they? Yeah, they even portrayed it as simple. I, it just, I mean, it bothered me. The simple part bothered me, but what bothered me even more was how willing Ebros, Ebros was just to let Jorah go. I wanted him to keep him there a little bit longer and make <laughs> and quarantine him to make sure. I don't know. I was worried. I was still worried when Jorah touched Sam. I was like, don't do it. <laughs> People are commenting on um, oh. your look here. My Tyrell, yeah, dress, I figured yes. it, it. I figured the Tyrell was the last chance, really, to wear it. And last <laughs> week was my last chance to wear Martell Pride. So <laughs> Tyrell is not so much in the show anymore, are they? <laughs> no, not at all. And I guess the Tarleys have high guard now. I guess it's Randall Car Tarley's spot. I don't know. 
I he, guess so. He needs more sons. To give it to Dickon. <laughs> yeah, but then Horn Hill. Who's going to rule Horn Hill? I guess yeah. he'll just have two spots. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Lady Gwyneth left us a note that says, Love how Sam portrayed it is very simple, too. He found a book and just read the directions. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think Lady Gwyn said it was a very Harry Potter kind of scene. <laughs> um, I think book readers were wishing that that's how the showrunners felt about it. <laughs> Read the book. Oh, zing, zing, zing. And it's funny too here. Uh, Sam gets punished, but his punishment was a promotion, really, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He should have been like, oh, thank you. Now you got to clean the poop. I mean, it's like, no, now you get to look at old books. Like, wait, that's better. Like, that's a promotion, isn't it? And of course, the books send up all kinds of alarm bells, right? That's a big question. We're wondering what's, what Littlefinger might care about in Lewin's records, but these records, these are the ones we really care about. What is Sam going to find in those old books? Hmm. I don't know. I really don't know. That's a big, big open question. Well, let's let's hope that he finds something other than, than those flesh-eating Dust mites <laughs> that got mentioned. Worse they than, gave me the. They freaked me out. It was worse than grayscale. <laughs> uh, Jorah, in general, a lot of this is kind of hard to rec- re- reconcile with the books. I mean, Sam discovering things at the Citadel, finding things in old books. Sure, that that'll probably happen in the in the book or in the in the books as well. <laughs> book in the books, uh, or other people will find things at the Citadel. That all just seems to fit pretty well, but. The grayscale stuff is a little harder to figure. I mean, I, I know that you guys don't have the same takes I do on what will happen with grayscale in the books, but surely no one thinks it's going to go like this. Mm-hmm. Connington comes over and then gets cured, and that's that. By Sam Tarly. By Sam Tarly, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. W- what do you think, Yoke Boy? What do you think about the um, the grayscale plot now oh. after we've had a little more detail? In comparison to the books, Aziz, I, I'm like you. I, you know, I've got no clue. I, is it this just something they've totally made up? I think that's probably the most likely at the moment. Um, but for me, the grail, the grayscale plot in the show has been quite strange, really. Especially if Jorah, you know, just goes straight back to Danny. It, it all seems a kind of a little bit pointless, doesn't it? Yeah. I, I think for for Jorah's character to kind of develop and change and evolve. He really needs to get over his obsession with Danny, you know. Enough's enough. He needs to advance his own life. You I know, agree. May, maybe, <laughs> yeah. Thank you. <laughs> he, he's 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 very stagnant with this obsession. It's going nowhere, Jory. You know what are you doing? <laughs> this is so, Young Boy's I, intervention. Jory's would... <laughs> <Your laughs> intervention. Yeah. I would love to say this to his face. I would say to him, Jora. Go and join the Night's Watch because we need some good characters up at the Night's Watch. And, you know, <laughs> They're not giving the us lost any characters. screens up there. Yeah, we just have Dollar's Head needs someone to talk to so we could have scenes up there. <laughs> Your father would really love it if you joined the Night's Watch. I've heard Theon Greyjoy is going to be up there. <laughs> Go and join him. And, and Book Jorah is just so... I mean, Book Jorah doesn't have Danny's forgiveness, let alone Grayscale. <laughs> Uh, he's a member of the Second Sons at the, you know, where the books are right now. I mean, it's just totally different. I mean, who knows what's going on? In the, um, I forget when you brought it up, but we were talking about what significance this could have. And I, I mean, clearly, I mean, there seemed to have been no consequences, no changes or of any sort, except for the fact that Daenerys didn't have Jorah when she first landed in Westeros. And the fact that Jorah and Sam now have this bond. Yeah. And so I think that could 
be the the consequences of this that yeah. maybe maybe John and Danny have some sort of conflict later on, but that both of their you know right hand men are friends with each other. Yeah, if Jorah vouches for Sam. Then whatever Sam says will be believed by Danny because Jorah, Danny will vow, will believe what Jorah says, mm-hmm. and that obviously whatever Sam says is going to be trusted by John. So yeah, that that's that's important. And also, like you said, having Jorah not be part of her staff when she's needs when the military situation is so in her favor enabled it to be more realistic that things went badly. You know, if Jorah was there giving her advice, I don't think the military situation would have been gone like this. But if, so they needed Jorah to not be there. So you, that's a great point you made there. We super have a sh- chat. super chat from Michael Pearson. Thank you, Michael. Do you think Sam will be involved in any way with the grayscale cure or epidemic in the book? Yeah, I do think that. I think that there's a very good chance of that, um, partly because I don't know who else would be. And I do think the grayscale plot will have a larger impact. And, you know, it, it seems like He's the maester guy. Like, he's our maester character, right? Um, maybe it'll be other people, but just connecting those dots on the on the surface, you know, maestery character, great, you know, disease breaks out. And, of course, the books tell us, the history tells us that one of the biggest grayscale outbreaks in Westeros happened in Old Town. You know, at the high, t- you know, the high t- Lord Hightower had to lock the gates and uh, they killed him later for it. <laughs> but he, what he did saved you know, saved the countryside from grayscale spreading all over. I want to highlight this uh, comment in the live chat from Acoustic Noise Mach- Machine who says that he feels bad for Jorah, beca- or, or he or she, I guess, because John gained his dad's respect, has his family sword, and is probably going to get his girl. His girl. <laughs> but... <Whoa>. Um, <laughs> It's a good point. Jorah may not point. like John. He's like, dude, this, why do you have all the things I want? <laughs> <laughs> he even can't match jo- John on like awful things that have happened. He's like, I got grayscale. I died. <laughs> <laughs> Just one upped on everything. <laughs> who who can, who can sulk the hardest out of those two? Which one is the mopiest? The, the most brooding. Tyrion Jorah, already Jorah said can that... brood pretty well, but he has no large fur cloak and. <laughs> and all that to help. Even though he's a northerner, he really should, right? But first time we ever see him, he's in the, the oh, yeah, you know, of Pentos. Course. Of course, George is a good brooder. He is from the north. You're right. <laughs> it's in his blood. Yeah. <laughs> After Liana Mormont scolds him, he'll probably have plenty of brooding to do. Like She told me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I think that covers it for Dragonstone. If you if y'all have questions, more, we'll be, when we get to the questions at the end, there will be more Dragonstone-related questions. But for now, let us move on. So again, if you have questions and they're not getting answered, put them in a document, copy-paste them, and put them in the chat again at the end of the episode when we can both actually read them without getting distracted from the main... Still no promises we can answer them because we are getting a a real high volume, but, you know, we're trying to give you your best chance. Okay, so King's Landing, Euron's Triumph. This (laughs) was really fun. Um, I obviously don't, don't like seeing Yara, you know carted in and cheered and or not cheered but jeered rather and and kind of made miserable um, i like that you only noticed i didn't Lara mention there. the sand snakes yeah, there, just... or Ilaria. <laughs> yeah <laughs> but man euron is so charismatic in that scene still i mean i maybe there's still lots of people that aren't on team euron or don't like him and I don't know. I, I'm not supporting Euron, but He's, I love watching him on TV. He is winning some <laughs> hearts. <laughs> winning some hearts over, definitely. The, the acting job is great. It's so much, such a step up from last year, too, when he 
didn't have great lines. What do you think about this scene, Yoke Boy? Uh, as you're talking, Ashea is going to pull up this awesome image of your. Take a close look at Euron's, uh, the horse head here. Okay. Okay. Yeah, this the, the when she's going through the streets, the first thing that I thought was, you know, the the walk of shame, which is actually referenced. So it's a rather obvious parallel. But another parallel I thought of, Euron rode his horse in into the throne room, you know, all confident and cocky. When do we last see this? Tywin did the same thing, rode his horse into a throne room. I, I'm sure that's kind of a rude thing to do. But, you know, when you just want a battle, you can do what the hell you want. And that's what Euron did. He kind of aped what Tywin did after the Blackwater. Yeah, he knew he had extra capital, so okay. to speak, political capital, and he spent it on being liked and enjoying it and saying, oh, people are cheering for a Greyjoy. It's kind of hard to see that happening in the books ever, but I suppose it could. You know, the people are fickle, and, and that's what Euron points out once he gets inside, talks to Jamie, and says, they just love severed heads, really. <laughs> but yeah, if you look on the screen, you can see this red eye uh, on his horse's uh, face, basically. Yes, the awesome face sigil. armor. And it, it was a detail I didn't catch at all watching the episode until I looked through the stills after the fact, so that was cool that they've gotten in a few you know references to his book character more there with that and on his ship and then the crow's eye on his armor yoga dork wants to know if he already cut out yara's tongue well i guess there's no way to know yet she certainly didn't say anything or even open her mouth it's possible hmm. um i feel like we will see that if that happens yeah uh, that's just not. my thought <laughs> I, I, yeah Edgar frey points out that euron's horse didn't take a massive poop at the entrance like tywin's did mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> just goes to show Euron's more sophisticated than Tywin. <laughs> but yeah, I really uh, liked the scene with Euron coming in there and just, I mean, giving her the gifts. And I think I liked even more afterwards him talking to Jamie, you know, and the things he said to him. But Euron had this great bow of a moment. Do you remember that? Yeah, he just does his a very flourish. Very flourish of a bow. It's so good. He played up the moment really well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he says, now that we're brothers to Jamie, right? <laughs> yeah, brothers. That's what Cersei wants. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and we, as predicted, Cersei didn't use this to kind of hold him at arm's length. It's like, good job. You know, I'm going to give you credit here in front of everybody. But... You don't get what you want until the war is won. So she's kind of, she's, that's a smart play on her part. You know, keep him, give him what he wants, but not all of what he wants. Just kind of lead him along, string him along and use his considerable military value here, which is mm-hmm. more than we might have even guessed at to this point. Yoke boy. Yeah. You got to take here on how he's kind of changed over time here in his short arc so far. Yeah, for me, just speaking personally, I I didn't really like Euron when he came in the show, and the King's Moot, I thought he he I thought he was miscast. I was like, is this really? And then I I feel like this episode, and maybe some of the battle in the last one, um, he's really turned myself around. And I know that I'm not the only one who feels like this. I'm kind of like, hey, he's a good villain, you know. He might not be book Euron he might be a bit of a departure in it in a lot of ways but there is some resemblance for sure and in his own right show Euron is a captivating villain now so yeah I'm really kind of glad I really wondered where where they were going with him I thought they made a mistake but no he's he's pulled it around so prove me wrong yeah, and I'm mm-hmm. looking forward to what he's what's coming next uh, just hopefully we get lots more dialogue from him <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, let's. Are you listening, D and D? Lots of dialogue from Yara. No torture scenes. We don't need that. <laughs> <laughs> now, interestingly, Yara is a prisoner 
Just like she is in the books. Well, not just like. But she is a prisoner in the books with Stannis, but now it's Euron instead. So that is sort of a parallel. And we don't really know what's going to happen with Yara in the book as far as her captivity. Except that maybe we should worry about her because she's in the same location as some, some other POVs. And that's always, you know, maybe you should worry about that. But maybe if she gets out in the books, if she escapes and gets back to doing things, maybe that's what's going to happen here, too. So there is some hope for her, i got to say. But let's talk about Cersei. Let's talk about her changes. Speaking of changed arcs and, and becoming someone else. We've seen her becoming, uh, behaving like the Mad King in the books um, in a few spots, and certainly there's hints of it here in the show, but this is, you know, it's a whole other level. These are much more direct parallels in this episode, and there's just something that hits us really hard here. And I pulled a nice long quote. This is A Feast for Crows, Jamie 2. Here we go. Jamie knew the look in his sister's eyes. He had seen it before, most recently on the night of Tommen's wedding, when she burned the Tower of the Hand. The green light of the wildfire had bathed the face of the Watchers so they looked like, no like nothing so much as rotting corpses, a pack of gleeful ghouls. But some of the corpses were prettier than others. Even in the baleful glow, Cersei had been beautiful to look upon. She'd stood with one hand on her breast, her lips parted, her green eyes shining. She's crying, Jamie had realized, but whether it was from grief or ecstasy, he could not have said. The sight had filled him with disquiet reminding him of Ares Targaryen and the way a burning would arouse him. A king has no secrets from his king's guard. Relations between Ares and his queen had been strained during the last years of his reign. They slept apart and did their best to avoid each other during the waking hours. But whenever Ares gave a man to the flames, Queen Rhaella would have a visitor in the night. The day he burned his mace and dagger hand, Jamie and John Derry had stood at guard outside her bedchamber whilst the king took his pleasure. You're hurting me, they had heard Rayella cry through the oaken door. You're hurting me. In some queer way, that had been worse than Lord Chelstead's screaming. We are sworn to protect her as well, Jamie had finally been driven to say. We are, Derry allowed, but not from him. Jamie had only seen Rayella once after that, the morning of the day she left for Dragonstone. So the implication there, too, is that this is when Daenerys was uh, um, conceived. So think about all that. Jamie is disquieted by the reminder of Ares. And Cersei, Cersei's sexual arousal, as soon as she exacts revenge on Ilaria and Tyene, is just, wow. Um, what did, uh, I see that Lady Gwyn had a, a, a nice long take here that, Yoke Boy, you're going to take over here. Again, for those who don't know, Lady Gwyn is not with us because of the darn storm god knocking out her electricity. So make sure in your prayers tonight you curse the storm yeah, it's god. <laughs> She says hello, by the way. Yeah, she says kudos to the show for capturing such a Martinian moment. The futility of revenge is a common theme in A Song of Ice and Fire. And this vengeance is only the latest act in a chain that actually extends, if you trace it back, all the way back to Cersei's childhood and possibly beyond, if Ares and Joanna tales are, are true. Ares refused Cersei. And then Rhaegar married Elia. Tywin had Elia killed. Presumably he was angry at what happened with the refusal of his daughter. Oberyn died seeking revenge, seeking revenge for Elia. And Ilaria sought vengeance for Oberyn. And now she herself is a victim of revenge. So it's this huge chain if you, if you follow it back. Though likely very different in the books since it's Ilaria herself who asked the question... Where does it end in the book? She's a very different character. So, um, 
and Lady Gwynne says that she she found this highly evocative of this sentiment, you know, that Alaria says in the book, where does it end? Here it is. It's just this huge chain of revenge that goes on and on through generations. Right on. Good take. Yeah, so I really, really loved this scene, and I was really shocked by how much I was into this scene. <laughs> uh, one, because I don't really care about Alaria Sand, and I want her and Tyene gone from the show, but I was truly, truly moved. One of the most moved I've ever been by any scene in the show, honestly, by this scene where you see these two women who've been so motivated by revenge in their lives and who actually have a, a, a lot in common and who Cersei seemed to have had respect for or slash liked, you know, and as she talks about hearing Ilaria's scream of grief when Oberyn was killed and, and she had this respect for it. But man, Indira Varma just killed it in this mm-hmm. scene with so little to work with. Her acting was incredible. She said so much and spoke so much about her regret and her lack of regret about this at the same time with not a single word in the whole scene. It was I don't really know. Incredible, yeah. It was great. And speaking of not a single so word, here's a picture of it though. As oh well. yeah, here we go. I was going to say, speaking of not a single word, the the silent giant standing over all of this. Now compare this to the Mad King scene. That's why there's some things that are different that are important, even though it's very similar. One of the major differences is that that when the Mad King burned Rickard in front of Brandon. The whole court watched. Jamie saw it, but as he points out to Ned in very early in season one, 500 people sat there in silence. The only sound was the screams and the laughter of the Mad King. To contrast that to instead of Jamie and all the other people watching, we have just just the mountain. <laughs> just the undead mountain, the one who killed Oberon, standing there as the only witness to this. And that's that's a very interesting sort of other side to this. Yeah, what, what, did you have some more to say on this, Yoke Boy? Especially the parallels to the Mad King, uh, Rickard and Brandon. Oh, nothing about the no. But my my thoughts about the scene were: I was really glad that the killing was like a poetic justice rather than you know so gratuitous. I was expecting something really hard to watch and you know gross. And they decided to show that Cersei can be a bit of a thinker when she wants to be. You know, she can use a brain. She she went for the poetic justice and it was really grim, but but not in the same, you know, horrible way that I was expecting. Yeah, someone's pointing out that Kyburn was there too. That's true. Kyburn was there as well. He's the other witness. That's a good point. I think it's worth noting, I mean, in terms of you're talking about the poetic justice of it all, but there was also Cersei choosing a punishment that was part of her own greatest fears that she talks about these nightmares of seeing people rotting away everyone that she knows has loved that's died she sees them rotting and so that's what she actually makes Alaria go through that's a great catch because that's something she says to Jamie that Jamie tries to try to like t- get her don't think about that don't think about their rotting you know them rotting away and all that and now she's forcing that on them it was it was really well done and I think actually comparing your two statements you uh Shea and Yoke Boy what you said about this scene made me realize something you, Yokwa, uh, uh, were worried that it would be really gratuitous. And that mm. may have been part of why the scene was so great, is because a lot of us were expecting that. And instead of it being gratuitous violence, it was amazing acting and just a really well done scene. So it was partly like relief and it was great. So it was like a double whammy. We were like all kind of bracing ourselves for, uh oh, what kind of awful thing is going to happen? And then it was like, oh, wow, this is just an amazing scene. It's it's somehow brutal, but awesome. And I think that I just got to give credit to them. You know, a lot of times we criticize D&D, but they just nailed it with this scene. Of course, maybe the, the lion's share credit should go to, to Lena Headey Lena and um, Indira Varma. But still, <laughs> they didn't write it. <laughs> and that credit goes to the writers, too. Yeah, so 
what do you guys think about? I know, I know, Lady Gwyn had made a note of here about re- Jamie's redemption arc and how it's just he doesn't necessarily sure. seem to be on one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, hopefully this Elena scene is put him on that path, but I don't know about that. Absolutely, that is maybe the the the, the saving point of that is that maybe there's still time for it, but. You know. So you have this note here, Aziz, about us about Cersei also being aroused after torture and killing. Yeah, clearly because she goes to give Jamie a blowjob. Yeah, that which is super important from what Jamie was saying that the Mad King would get turned on when burning somebody. Then Cersei immediately goes and and goes and has sex with Jamie, which also has the side effect of bringing them closer together again. Mm-hmm. Uh, Super chat from Michael Rachal. Rachal, not even watching now, but will later. Love your content. Well, Thank thanks, you. Michael. Appreciate it. All right. Um, so yeah, so many parallels between the Mad King, um, but also just not beyond the Mad King, or something that also applied to the Mad King, is the effect of power on the human mind. Cersei, you see that happening here. She's so feeling so empowered, and it's important to note that she's always, never had full control like this. She was Robert's queen, and the queen mother, and the queen regent, and all these other things, but this is the first time she could just basically fully be in charge and that's different so that's more from from her perspective that's more empowering yeah, she's, she's so just... she's so drunk with power that she's making all the serving girls get her awful haircut <laughs> no I, I think that that is i i do think that that's them just wanting to emulate her as the style as that often just always happens but i really like the idea that cersei like ordered all those the maids to get that haircut that would be really funny if she actually issued that order that is by the way if, if you missed our show only review we, we have a hat tip to joanna robinson of vanity fair for pointing that out that that serving girl has been seen before in previous seasons, and she had longer hair, so she has... In the Cersei style, with the, the exact Cersei style. So she's always had Cersei style, which is pretty funny. <laughs> and But, you know, to me, and I, I'll repeat this, I said this in show only also, but whenever you see a serving girl get lines, it's like, wait, 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 is this a setup? Is this Arya going to be this person later? <laughs> I don't know, just something to think about. <laughs> Let's see here. So let's move on to the Iron Bank scene here. Um, this was contentious for a lot of people. Um, I, I didn't have a big problem with it, partly because watching it a few times made it clear that uh, Tycho Nestoris, he was not committing to them being involved in slavery. He just didn't deny it. I'll say I'm much more negative about this than Aziz, but I'm still maybe more moderate than other people about this because two things about it. One, if... Tycho Nestoris, let's say they, they are actually invested in the slave trade. The Bravosi people can still be against this and it can still be somewhat known and be a point of conflict. And the reason I'm thinking about this is because we're going to have these spin-off successor shows and I'm curious what world building they'll take from Game of Thrones, the show, versus if it's all going to be a From a Song of Ice and Fire. So if they set this precedent, I wonder if it could have ramifications for the Bravosi show. Basically, though, I think the Iron Bank can be corrupt while still having the Bravosi culture remain intact, which is what I care about. I don't care about the Iron Bank having morals or anything like that. I want the Bravosi people to be founded by former slaves who would never be involved in that. Yeah, and I guess it's not it's nearly as clear if, if Shokanen matches that or not, but they didn't trample on that. If, if only the Iron Bank has... That doesn't sure mean the, the rest history, of I'm pretty sense. sure the histories and lore have mentioned it. I think so, too. Clearly, so but too. the histories and lore have, have been con- contradicted by things in the show as well. Right on. So, yeah, so she... Th- it's, a, it's some good banter, and I like the how Tycho brings up Tywin a couple times to try to flatter her, because you know, we, we know in the books she really kind of thinks of herself 
as a lot like Tywin in some places she thinks of herself as better than Tywin, but it's a good way to flatter him or flatter her. And I thought it was pretty effective. And I thought their conversation was good. Yeah, it's it's really easy to see now in hindsight, isn't it, that this scene was a setup for the Casterly Rock Highgarden strategy. In the books, uh, Tywin simply refuses to personally guarantee the crown's debts to the Iron Bank. But in the show, it's been commented on before that their gold mines are like almost depleted. She'd need to have something significant up her sleeve to make that that dramatic repayment promise. And of course, it works that you know Cassidy Rock is is worthless now. So it's a great setup for the twist that came, you know, ten minutes later, whatever it was. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, yeah, that, that really threw us for like, what does she mean in a fortnight? How is she going to do that so quickly? Yeah, yeah, I didn't put it together at all. It should have been really obvious, I think, but it was worth it because I, I just like hand to the head. It was a know? fun surprise. It was like, oh, wow. It just all came together really well. Not only the, the surprise of where Jamie was, but how that tied back to Cersei. So, you know, despite some of the logistical questions people have about this, about the final uh about the end of the episode that i guess we know how long it takes to ride from king's landing to high garden back again (laughs) (laughs) fortnite (laughs) with a few days for the the siege i don't know probably he'll just charge them a 35 dollar fee if they're late (laughs) (laughs) okay and yeah so i want i like to point out that Tyrion not really behaving like tywin anymore in the books he starts to go that way and uh, Jenna Lannister says to Jamie that Tyrion's always been more like Tywin than he is. But here in the show, at this point, Jamie is far more like Tywin than Tyrion is. Although maybe that'll change again. So let's take a look at the awesome Casterly Rock. Not exactly how a lot of us pictured it, but no. that is a really cool. It's castle. halfway there. Yeah. <laughs> it's like close. If you just chopped off the top part and just continued it to go all the way up, that's it. That's it. Yeah. Make the the. Cliffs a little more golden. I don't know. Uh, I, I'm pretty disappointed, honestly, in, in both Casterly Rock and High Garden. But no. you know, what, I, I don't know. I, I won't get too deep in my complaints about it. But <laughs> I, I like it when they have really awesome looking castles, and I didn't think this was a really awesome looking castle at all. So. Right on. Well, what did you think of the strategy here, Yoke Boy? It was um, pretty much nobody saw this coming, I, as far as I know. Yeah, well, no one saw, saw it coming means that it must have been great strategy. <laughs> Emptying the larders of the castle and, you know, kind of sacking your own castle, leaving the uns- unsullied. Now, really out of the game with without their ships and everything. They're in a really, when you think about their situation, the unsullied are in, they're in a really bad situation, you know. They're they're going to find themselves very hungry, lost, and you know strategically wise they're neutralized for now. And it kind of reminded me of you know sacking your own city so the enemy can't 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 grab your food in wartime. Cersei winning her victories in this episode was really important for the plot. Danny's air of complete supremacy at the start of the season, has now been reduced. And now she is going to have to scrap and fight to call herself queen, which is exactly what Cersei and the plot really needed, I think. We have um, patron Rob Storm pointing out again uh, the secret room that Tyrion brought girls to. It's reminiscent of the Tywin Tunnel to King's Landing that leads to Shatayas. Now, we'll never know for sure in the books, probably, whether that was really Tywin's tunnel or not, because Cersei destroy it well burned it with wildfire mm-hmm. the tower of the hand is gone so 
that tunnel has probably collapsed as well. <laughs> and this is an important thing here. There is Cersei and Jamie are probably farther from their book character versions than most of the main characters. And part of that is the direction of their arc. Part of that is that they're basically taking over what we expect a lot of the Fagon slash Young Griff, you know, Aegon the Sixth plot to be. And also, super important, Cersei and is way older. This is one of the larger age-ups that they've done. You know, most of the characters they added like two years to or something like that. But Cersei is it's it pretty clearly at least the way they've spelled it out, past her childbearing years in the show, where she's not in the books, not even not even close, really. And Jamie being a little older doesn't have as much of an effect, but, you know, they're twins, so he's clearly the same age as Cersei. And the thing is, the difference between their family situation is really different, too. And that means the characters have to be different. And what I'm referring to is the lack of gold at Casterly Rock. Would show, would Book Tywin ever give up Casterly Rock? In current circumstances, no, I don't think he would. But if the mines were empty and his army was small and... And he, he had needed, just cause. Yeah, and he came up with this idea, I think he would. You know, because it's all about pride for Tywin, a lot of it. But Tywin also understands the bottom line. He's not going to sacrifice pride to lose. And if he thinks this is going to win him the war, the the, the note that he lost Castry Rock temporarily during the war is not going to bother him that much if he wins the war. And if he loses the war, he's dead. Also... Jamie and Cersei, if they can't have kids, again, which is a huge difference from the show or from the books, of course they're going to do, they're not going to care about nostalgia. They're not going to care about the future as much. They're going to care about bottom lines and, and you know, establishing themselves because they're not worried about their kids or what their kids are going to have. They're not worried about leaving Castle Rock for their descendants because they don't have descendants. So it's really important to when you're trying to justify how the show treats Jamie and Cersei, it's really important to realize just how very different they are. And it's probably wrong to make too many comparisons between the two, unless you're looking for maybe predictions or things like that. So that's my spiel on the massive difference between those two. I recall us wondering what Euron was going to do next. And well, we found out in a very surprising way, <laughs> but we still have to wonder about that. What is Euron going to now? What is Euron going to do? Any thoughts on that? Is anyone, my idea is still Old Town, but I got nothing else. Yeah, I think Old Town. Or torturing Yara. <laughs> yeah, the torture scenes, Old Town, dealing with whatever, whatever hassle Cersei's about to get into. Cause we know that, you know, it's going to, the script is going to get flipped for her momentarily she seems to be doing really well but i feel like she's things are gonna go poorly for her in the next episode or two and she might want more help from Euron. that's true she may have specific targets in mind or yeah just something to go attack the north go attack mm. yeah who knows there's a lot of possibilities there if, if she really wants Euron's help she should shut her door when she's having sex with jamie <laughs> what a stupid thing to do think, uh, like I, let everyone know no no Euron's <laughs> into it i think i don't know he likes it <laughs> Weird oh my god! I, I've uh, I've heard about what Euron likes to do. Yeah, Euron would have a threesome with those two. He'll stick fingers in both of their bums. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh god! Yeah. <laughs> um, now a lot of people complaining about the timing of how these battles work. I had a lot less problem. But first of all, I think there's this general attitude about how the show does timelines. I think people are a lot more generous to George than they are to the show. I think it's fair when you're judging the show's timelines. You have to look at the whole range of possibilities. You can't just jump straight to, oh, they screwed up. This doesn't work. 
And I think I that think, happens too much. I think there's two notable things here. Um, one is that when, when viewing the timeline, sometimes I view it in, in the light of the pacing being off in that previous seasons, things took a lot longer and now they're moving a lot more quickly. So that throws people off when it, when it took someone this long to travel this far and now it takes them like no time at all. It's weird. It, it throws you off for it sure. Does, I agree. They should, but, they should tell you about the time passing more. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of different visual cues that they could use to do stuff like that. I mean, I mentioned, for instance, Cersei's hair growing is yeah. one, and maybe her hair did grow a little bit. But my other thought is, um, I was immediately up in arms at the thought that the Unsullied left Dragonstone at the same time as the Greyjoys. The Greyjoys get taken out by Euron's ship, and then Euron gets to King's Landing, and then he gets to Casterly Rock. Well, no, we don't actually see the Unsullied and the Greyjoys leave at the same time. That's one scene where they talk about their plan, but we don't see them embark together, so you can just easily tell yourself the Unsullied left whatever time period is necessary for you it to work out. You should tell yourself that, because yeah. if they left together, they would have been together. They were going yeah. in the same direction. They were both yeah. going all the way to Dorne, and then they would have split up. So we already know they didn't leave together, because yeah. they weren't together when the Iron Fleet was attacked by Euron. So that clearly means that the Targaryen fleet left later. And that was why we have uh, the scene with Grey Worm saying goodbye. So mm-hmm. that ma- so so here's what happens: Euron intercepts the Greyjoy, the other Greyjoy fleet, and the Dornish fleet destroys it and goes straight to King's Landing to drop his 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 you know to get his reward. Around the time that Euron is in King's Landing or about to arrive or something like that. That's when Grey Worm leaves to and go it, to Casterly Rock. And it makes sense that Grey Worm would take longer to leave. They have 5,000 soldiers to prepare and equip and outfit, whereas the other ships are empty going to pick up soldiers. So they should leave sooner. That is logistically correct. Then, so if, if you want to say, which you should, that the Targaryen fleet leaves before Euron leaves King's Landing, that still works. All you got to do is imagine something like a storm slowing down the, Grey, the, uh, the Targaryen fleet. And you don't even need that. Who the, the Iron Fleet should be faster. It's faster. It's got better sailors, better captains, better ships. It's supposed to be faster. So the only problem I have with it is that they got there right at this perfect moment. But it doesn't even matter. Imagine those ships at anchor. Let's say Grey Worm has more time to figure out what's going on. Let's say Grey Worm puts, t- you know, captures the castle, then goes back outside, puts all the ships at anchor, and just lets them sit there. They don't have a protected spot for them. So then Euron just sails up and firebombs them all. The same thing happens. So I don't have a problem with it. It was maybe, it's a, it's a storytelling problem, not a logistical problem. They made it confusing, but if you break it all down, it actually works fine. It doesn't work great, it works fine. So, and again, you mentioned we've mentioned this before, but scenes don't take place, you know, necessarily at the same time period. You can get an Arya scene and you can get a John and Sansa scene, and that Arya scene could have taken place a few months before the John and and Sansa scene even though they're in the same episode, which is how it can make sense for it, it is strange still to me in terms of pacing, in terms of how the audience feels for Arya to take this long to travel up north or the Brotherhood when other characters are traveling so quickly. I but agree. we have to remind ourselves of that. They have to communicate. This is so this is what so yeah. So I I agree with that. So I would definitely repeat it's not good storytelling, but it's not a logistical problem. Um, yeah. or at least not a, not an egregious one. So I see people say, saying, you can see I was a little frustrated with having this discussion. I can see other people in the chat saying, it's a waste of time to talk about these yeah. kind of things. And I kind but of we have to We have to clear the air about it because a, this a was, lot of people wanted this was to an talk episode about it. where I myself was upset at first until I started thinking about it. But we yeah. got a super chat here from 
Tootie Rootin. Nice name. Uh, one, 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 one. Uh, one, one, one. <laughs> one, one. But uh, it, who asks, will John Connington take Highgarden in the book? Okay, good segue. We're about to talk about Highgarden. So I don't know if John Connington will, but I think Highgarden's going to go down in the books. I do think that. I think uh, some of the other pundits out there don't agree with this, but because, because first of all, Tyrells are far more equipped. This is where we have to remember that Willis and Garland Tyrell exist in the books. And even though Willis is crippled, he he's there's he doesn't have shortcomings as a commander. He should be fine as a battlefield commander. And Garland is just a full badass, you know, period. <laughs> so, but the same kind of misdirection can happen in the show. Or that, or that can happen in the books that happens in the show. If the Tyrell armies are tricked to be going to the wrong place, and let's say, don't forget, who's in charge of the Tyrell armies? It's Tyrell, not the smartest guy. So all we got to imagine is that the Tyrell army is drawn somewhere away from Highgarden. Another Tyrell army is drawn away from Highgarden. And boom, there you go. Someone takes it. Also, Ashea has um, an, an image here, or actually... I wanted to talk about the image. Okay, let's let's talk about this image first, and then all we'll right. go back to the strategy. All right. Um, so here's Highgarden here. And again, like I already mentioned, I, I was pretty disappointed in both Highgarden and Casterly Rock. One, because we get this one shot of Highgarden, really. <laughs> Hardly any time to save them on CGI. But two, I, I know we weren't going to get it. But how awesome would it have been to get that maze, that labyrinth that they have outside their castle? It would be so cool. And they're not doing it. Uh, this is just my, my moment to complain to Grouse about <laughs> their CGI budget not just being used for decadent castles. <laughs> I, I personally, and I saw someone else tweet about this, that they're just going to switch Hornhill and Highgarden in their, uh, in their mind that... Horn Hill is High Garden, and so this is Horn Hill we're seeing. Huh? Yeah, yeah, I like the idea of that. It's on a hill. It looks yeah, like it would okay. be it. And Horn Hill looks so uh, elegant, and, and you know, with the like kind of Roman Grecian type, you know, uh, pillars that it had. So I, I like that idea. I'm going to tell myself that. <laughs> Although, so to be fair, you know, and it was also the castle went down really easily, which is something people complain about. I don't mind that. I kind of agree that it should maybe should have been a little oh. harder. He's at, uh, Kenny's in the chat. Axie, that's the person who that's on Twitter tweeted oh. that. He says I switched Hornhill to Highgarden. That's who I got the idea from, and I was like, yes, taking it. That's perfect. Thank oh. you. Oh, and here's Louis Teleno, our one of our dragoners, pointing out that Cashley Rock and Highgarden were filmed the same real castle. No, that that explains things. One, why they looked so generic, and two, why when we first saw Highgarden, I was like. Wait, is that Casterly Rock? I was really confused for a second, especially the ocean right there. Yeah. Which is like the, the mander coming up. It threw it's, me. The, it's the river, but it threw me as well. I so. thought it was King's Landing in the first trailer, like before <laughs> the season started. So, but if we talk more about the military side, I have a quote. And we also have a map shot, something we haven't done in a while on a on a TV review episode. We've never done it in a TV review episode. Oh, yeah, never. Think. Okay. So look at where everything is here and listen to Victorian. The plan was good, I grant him, Victorian said as she knelt beside him. The mander is open to us now as it was of old. It was a lazy river, wide and slow and treacherous, with snags and sandbars. Most seagoing vessels dared not sail beyond Highgarden, but long ships with their shallow drafts could navigate as far upstream as Bitterbridge. Look how far Bitterbridge is inside the continent there. That is really far. So if you can imagine, this is why I have the, uh, the idea that you could see things getting thrown around, right? Like... Meaning that the Tyrell armies could be drawn away from other to other targets, leaving Highgarden more exposed. Um, so if ships can go all along this area, plus all along the coast, plus Old Town, you can see how it'd be very difficult to deal with an ironborn threat all over the place like that. 
Looks like we have a $50 super chat from the snow in Winterfell. Oh, wow. Kids won't let me sit. Thanks very much, Mark. We'll watch whole show later. See everyone in the chat next time. Love you all. Even you, Yoke Boy. Oh, wow. This donation is for you and Lady Gwen. Okay, we'll we'll make sure they get it. I love you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> I love your show and keep forgetting to become a patron. We'll do it soon. John and Danny for the win. Oh. Right, thanks a bunch again, Mark. He's always helping us out in a lot of ways, including in the in the chat room here as an administrator. So, um... MVP. Awesome. Is that your dragon rider? Is that is that your first dragon rider? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Maslakartha. Maslakartha, yeah. right. Okay, great. Thank you. Yeah. So, we 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 haven't heard from you in a while, Yoke Boy, as we've been going through these images. Do you what do you what's your take on on Highgarden here in this uh, military situation or just anything about Highgarden? Oh. What do you have to say here. We can jump ahead to Olena. Can we? Yeah, let's talk about Olena. Let's talk about Olena because, you know, we've done quite a lot of uh, military stuff, haven't we? So, wow, what a scene with Olena. It it was just so so fantastic. Um, I love the widow's whale conversation to kind of set the scene (laughs) because I think the last time it was seen, obviously on screen, widow's whale, was at the wedding when Tywin gave it to Joffrey at the purple wedding. So Mm -hmm. it, it really set the scene and... Elena managed to strike a victory in death. And for me, that was a really appropriate way for a really top-notch character to bow out of the show. Diana Rigg was brilliant as Queen of Thorns. And this scene, you know, to top all the kind of... To, to, to top the action scenes that we'd seen earlier, it really did top them all, didn't it? It was the perfect end to this episode. Yeah, it was really good. And I like the, the touch of... Us not actually seeing her die. Not that I think there's any reason to think she's not dead. That's not what I mean by that. I just mean that it was, uh, you know, very noble, very like. Fitting. We see Dario again. People are going to think Olena's Dario. <laughs> actually, you know what's funny is I just caught another very subtle reference. I, I've been, I always go around and read all the like subtle Easter egg ones, and I haven't seen this one. When Olena uh, asked if he named that sword, what did he name that sword? And she, you know, or did he name that sword? And she says, he says, Widow's Whale. And she, you know, what word she calls him? Well, what does Sandor say about people who name their swords? Uh-huh. <laughs> he uses uh-huh. the same word. Of uses course. the same C word. It makes so. me feel better about that scene because I hate it when they use that word in the show <laughs> because there's this great line in the books where where Asha thinks about why is it that men use this word when they that's what they prize in a woman or whatever she however she <laughs> says it and so it just drives me crazy when they use it in the show so I like it better now thank you <laughs> <laughs> just got that I didn't, I didn't think of that before yeah and and, and this this shot too tell us yeah. about this one I mean, this, like, as much as I hated Highgarden, this shot right here of Elena up at the top of this tower looking out at the, the ocean, I, I guess it's the ocean. I was thinking it was the river, but now that I look at it, it's, it looks like the ocean. But, I mean, I think it's one of my favorite all-time shots in the whole show. So, it's they have beautiful. that going for them. This castle was beautiful in this respect. Uh, the lighting, just everything about it, it was... I, like, gasped when it cut to this scene. <laughs> <laughs> Something that maybe it was lost in the shuffle that might, you know, people can easily look at the scene and think, well, maybe, maybe Jamie is going to start, maybe this is a dividing point for him and Cersei, especially the news about Tyrion, which, as we know from behind the, from the, behind the scenes, Dave and Dan confirm that Jamie believes her. He just accepts it where he's like, oh, he knows it's true right away. So wow. we don't have to doubt that, which means that, well, what do we think that means? Is it going to be a wedge because Tyrion you know that's a big thing that's not going to matter for Cersei probably Cersei's not going to hate Tyrion less but it might it's, it should matter for Jamie, don't we think yeah it, it it really changes everything that Jamie and Cersei thought they knew about 
Tyrion and Joffrey's death and, you know, some things about Tywin even. Not sure how it changes kind of the dynamics between them. And like you say, does Cersei really care when Tyrion stood next to her enemy? Does she really care that uh, he, he didn't... That, Tyrion didn't do it. I I don't know. It'd be interesting. If this happened in the books, then it would be like, whoa, a really big thing for yeah. sure. Yeah. It's hard to see Olena being the one to reveal this, but you know, things could so many things could change. I mean, it's just the Tyrells arc is just just so many so many more Tyrells in the book. The idea yeah. of them being wiped out, I can see them losing their castle, but all of them but them being extinct as a family is like, nah, I don't think so. There's too many of them. That's just it's kind of crazy to think that they'd all be killed. Mm-hmm. And I think she'd be less likely to out herself for revenge, knowing that there's other Tyrells for them to keep getting revenge on. I think that's, that's part of why she's willing to do that. Yeah, you're right. They, she would not have said that if if she was going to be taken off to that's captivity. Said, with how many Tyrells exist, I personally think that, that they weren't all at, at the at the trial at the Sept. You know, I think that. <laughs> there were lots of cousin Tyrells out there. I don't think the show is going to get into that, but I still think that the Tyrells aren't technically wiped out right now. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, and they, you're right. They probably just kind of some cousins out there they didn't bother to mention. I also want to point out that Jamie is realizing this was a mistake. He showed a little mercy to her, giving her a nice clean death. And look what happened. <laughs> <laughs> like he did that. He was kind of nice to her and it blew up on his, in his I mean, face. I mean, it didn't I, ruin in the long anything. run, he might see it as good because yeah, it might be true. what breaks him free of Cersei and, and has him bond again with Tyrion. Hopefully. Part of the reason I say that though, is that he mentioned one of the overtones of the scene was Jamie learning from his mistakes. <laughs> so if this was a mistake to be nice to her, then maybe he'll just be like, nah, next time Widow's Whale's just going through your throat. <laughs> I'm not gonna, that'll be that. <laughs> By the way, you guys talked about this in the show only, but I just want to highlight again how clever they were in their episode descriptions for this episode. One with Jamie learns from his mistakes. It's a very old mistake about the whispering wood. Yeah, we and missed two, that. Cersei returns a gift. It wasn't really, it was, she returns the gift of, of killing your daughter. Yeah. Uh, which is kind of what we thought about, but it's still a little different than the context. We were truly wondering if she wasn't going to accept it in some way, etc. So I like it when they're tricky. Yeah, it's good to be fooled because, you know, we do pour over the material so much. We do guess a lot of things. Good to be, I like being wrong <laughs> because it means we're surprised. All right. So that, that's most of our regular coverage, but we have a lot of questions. I want to give shout outs to people who asked questions that we didn't get, we didn't call out your names, but we worked in emails from a lot of people who sent us quest, long questions or short questions. We worked some of those in without directly referencing you because we had already planned on talking about some of these things. So thanks to Holly W, Sarvesh C, Chris M from Austin, JPR. Eliana G, Carol from Germany, Thomas T, Janine S, Ron Scott, Keith W, Ivy L R, Tad H, O'Neill M, and Ali M. Also, we got a lot of questions from patrons that are, we're going to be a little more specific on some of these, but a lot of patron questions we won't be able to get to either just because there's so many. Oh, looks like Evan Hollenshade is jumping in. Love the show, guys. Is it just me or is there a similarity between the Unsullied scene in Castle Rock and Marine? Minus losing the ships. Hmm. hmm. Yeah. I mean, they... they- they destroyed the ships too there. <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. You know, coming in through coming in through the sewers is the similarity. Yeah, that's a great point. Yes. That th- they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Unsullied are getting good at those sewer infiltrations, aren't they? <laughs> of course in the uh in the sh- in the books it's not the unsullied. It's just maybe a, is it a couple unsullied that go with Belwas and Jora and some of the other um infiltrators but i think maybe some some unsullied go with them i forget i'll have to check on that but it's certainly not just the unsullied in the book and the idea that the unsullied would take this castle in the show 
or in, in the books is interesting too. Are would the Unsullied go to Castle Rock? Huh. I guess they could. It's hard to predict. Do we think Tyrion's actually going to go to Casterly Rock for this um, in the books? Whereas he didn't go, and then we, we certainly thought it was possible yeah. that he would go in the in this episode, um, but hmm. it didn't happen. Yeah, that's it's a tough call. It's really it's it's, it's maybe it's, it's maybe that we're too far from getting to that point in the books to predict, but yeah. it seems possible. I mean, if yeah. you're going to send if you're going to go up against this crazy never beaten castle and you have a secret way in. It makes sense to use, you know, the best infantry in the world <laughs> for that. So it, it would be great in the books if Tyrion captured Casterly Rock. But, <laughs> you know, he couldn't live there. He couldn't sustain it. You know, he, it was just an empty prize. Yeah. I think that would be... I'm not saying that would happen, but, you, you know, it, it, it could happen. I also think another thing that we've talked about is the idea that Cersei will, you know, retreat to the rock, to Casterly Rock, and so that this battle could be very different in the books if Cersei... If they take Casterly Rock while Cersei is in it. It's a thing we thought about before. Maybe it's less likely because of the show, but I, this is one I don't think it's influenced my thoughts. I still think Cersei will leave King's Landing. From Red Ramirez Ravenhorn of Skegos, do you think Jamie will find out the truth of Joffrey's poisoning at all in the books? Yeah, I do. She follows the question up. It would, it be, it would be awesome if it came from Lady Olenna. That part we discussed already, and it's a little harder to see it coming that way. There are not a lot of other ways for it to happen. There are a lot of people who know about the poisoning plot. You know, Littlefinger probably isn't going to spill it. But I do think that that will happen in some way or another that Jamie will learn that it wasn't Tyrion. So do you guys have a different take? Do you think maybe that, that I'm being, is that wishful thinking? That he finds out? Yeah. No, I think he'll find out. Okay, cool. Agreement. All right. <laughs> From Lady Nymeria of House Seapertle. Seapertle. Yeah, yes. Exactly. A purring turtle or, yeah. We just, I just need to get like a little noise machine that has like a cat. Her that I can like play right then. With the wibbly, wobbly, timey wimey Bran slash three eyed raven timeline, do you think that Bran is the Night King, head other? Will it be Bran versus John in the end? Assuming that John is Azor, Azor High Reborn, of course. Um, I don't think he'll be the Night King, but I do think he'll maybe do some dark things that are kind of inhuman because he's lost a lot of his humanity. But going full evil, mm, yeah, I don't know about that. That's, that may be, I don't predict that. I, I wouldn't say it's not going to happen, but I, don't, I wouldn't predict that. Anyone else got a take on that? Mm. No, I think that, you know, you see characters kind of lose their identity, but Bran, he's still part Bran, you know, and I hope that that shines through in the end and that, you know, whatever he does as a green seer, you know, his roots as a, Son of Ned Stark shines through as with as it's doing with the other Stark kids. That's yeah, true. I also want that to happen. I think it's really sad how Bran is right now. Um, is is like I don't know, ridiculous, funny as it is. We're making fun of him. I also think it's just very sad that he's like this. But I also really don't want there to be any more wibbly wobbly, timey wimey things. Any at this point, I like like what happened with Hodor. But I feel like they set this precedent that Bran has actually connected with someone and, and interacted with someone in some way and screwed things up. So I tend to think that it will happen again. As much as I actually don't want it to happen, and I don't know about the books, I'm hoping it's just not in the books at all. That that sort of thing, but it might be. Yeah, it might be. Yeah. That's true. Okay, uh, from Painkiller Jane. Should we be looking at parallels between Euron and Jorah? Because they're both bringing their queen's gifts. Cersei was given the Sand Snakes and Dandy was given Tyrion. Both, in a way, were rebuffed and both were exiled before becoming Hand. That's interesting. You know, I didn't uh, I didn't think of that. And it's pretty clever. I may have to spend more time thinking about it. But she has a second part of the question here. 
the common man being given power and becoming dangerous is from Duncan Egg, and it's a, a theme that we is, is coming up in the show here. Uh, the Mystery Knight is what she's referring to. Here's a quote. Did Sir Quentin die upon the red grass field? Before, sir, Egg replied. An archer put an arrow through his throat as he dismounted by a stream to have a drink. Just some common man, no one knows who. Those common men can be dangerous when they get it in their heads to start slaying lords and heroes. Yeah, and, you know, Davos is our favorite common man who's become a lord. <laughs> and certainly with the Night's Watch, there's full of common men. I think of Kyburn and his dragon Ooh. weapon, personally. Boom. That's a great one. Yeah, wow. I did not think of that one. That's really good. So, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a, it's, this is a good catch. I don't have a lot to say about it, but it's a great parallel between what the show is doing that has a, a kind of a deep, deep cut book theme that I did not catch. Uh, from Lord of the Chicken Dance, with how Danny is suffering in the show at the moment, do you think that when she reaches Westeros, she will suffer traitors and spies in her service that undermine her? She may already be suffering from that. Like we've talked about the possibility of Varus. Again, I, I struggle with that idea, even though there seems to be some evidence for it. But it would be, I don't know if the show has time for that. Um, but I think in the books, yeah, I think she's going to have, she's going to suffer betrayals. I mean, she's got a major betrayal, according to Quaith, that's still coming, <laughs> or the House of the Undying. And, all that. So, yeah. So I think that maybe they'll try to do some of that to maybe capture some of that book arc. But it's pretty hard to, to say, you know, specifics. Um, but Varus is still remains a possibility. And if Littlefinger is somehow still alive, then we got to think of him. Okay, so Tila. So obviously in the book, most of this will be different. Randall Tarly will probably defect to Aegon. What is going to happen with the Tyrells and Highgarden? Will they fall out easily or will they join Aegon and Daenerys? I think they will stay loyal. Because they are their marriage and their their claim to the throne depends on their connection to House Baratheon slash Lannister. It depends on how things change there, really. Yeah, but if as long Tommen's as Tommen's killed before that that point, then right. their ties will be cut. That's a, it's yeah exactly. As long as Tommen and Marjorie are alive, it's it's a lot harder for Mace Tyrell and Olena to want to do something else to defect to Danny, and. Since Cersei's plot, a lot of this is a stand-in for Fagon. I think this is going to go very similarly. Tarly will defect to Aegon, just like this. And losing Highgard, we talked about that briefly before. I don't know about that. I think it might happen because I could easily see how they would be tricked, especially with Mace in charge of the of the armies, and with Euron having so being so much more clever and having so many places he can strike. So I could see that happening, and I think that it might be a little similar. I don't think it'll happen to, as a device because they need money. You know, I don't think they'll go after Highgarden, you know, as that part, that aspect, I don't think will be there. But controlling Highgarden is really important and that could be huge if, if it falls to, to an enemy, to a non-loyal Reachman. Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Blackrune ta is talking about the Stark look and how John has the Stark look and Arya has the Stark look. Again, this is the books, of course. And since he thinks that neither of them are going to survive nor at least not procreate what will what does it matter or does it matter if the stark heirs have a particular look he says my inclination is that the stark look actually emanates from their werewood in the winterfell godswood that is what we believe as well or at least to have a strong theory about in our werewood episodes mm -hmm. we we bring that up and talk about it quite a lot uh, his question continues then as sansa is queen in the north her children will have the appropriate look to rule the north as unquestionably stark i remember at one point catelyn thinking that part of ned resides in that tree so yeah that's that's kind of interesting the whole idea of the, I wonder if that's even going to be addressed. I, I don't know if that the future of the Starks will will be addressed in the show. I think it'll probably just will will end at a point where some of the characters are alive and in a safe place, and you know maybe looking back on on the horrible things that happened. 
And yeah, it may be, you may be right. That may be part of the new look, the Westeros' new look. We got different types of governments installed and maybe some of these old old traditions are dying out. We got Danny and John who have very progressive ideals with regards to how families, how the, you know, you're, you should consider your ancestors, you know, not following their oaths and not being guilty of their crimes. And having these looks passed down won't be as important either. It could fall, it could work in with that kind of in a thematic way. Any other takes on that? I agree. Cool. <laughs> All right, let's do a few more. And then we'll wrap it up. A lot of questions didn't get answered, but I'm sure y'all can see that I don't know what we could have done differently or try to answer as many as we can. Uh, okay, so from Mallory Sanrixian, lately I've been thinking about the likelihood of seeing another dragon rider on the show is getting less and less. How do you think they will address this in the books? Do you think Tyrion or Jon will get to ride a dragon? Since the show has left out a lot of warging slash dragon dreams, it would make sense the magical aspect of dragon riding and taming will be glossed over or left out. Yeah, just as they've left out the skin changing for wolves, I think that any sort of bond between dragon rider and dragon is going to be mostly just kind of left up in the air and i think the same i don't think they're going to change like who the dragon riders are from book to show i think that's too big of a plot point that george gave them i'd say that some people that think are, are on the brand team for that um for mm. whatever reason or him having so involved with the dragon and i don't see that happening in the show whereas i think it's more likely in the book so i don't know Mm, okay. It's a slight disagreement for me on that, that I think it's a little different there, but that's I, I'm not really on team brand with the dragon in general. Okay. All right, let's take like two or three more. Mm, I see a question here from Plexa Bertrand that asks if we think there'll be a payoff resulting from the scene in season five where Cersei meets with Littlefinger and says that she still hasn't called him out for being... You know, treason. A treasonous weasel, it says. Yeah. A treason weasel. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's a good term. I need to remember that one. Treason weasel. That's. <laughs> yeah, I'd say I think Cersei that. has a lot more important things and Littlefinger has a lot more important things to deal with right now. So I can't see it happening anytime close, you know, close to now because I can't see Littlefinger leaving the North. But if something happens with Arya arriving or the Brotherhood or anything that outs Littlefinger and he isn't actually killed there which I think he will be killed. If he isn't killed, then I think that would come up. But I think he's done for. Yeah, I, th- I kind of tend to agree. Question from Curveball. Sam's Ark. Aziz believes Obsidian is involved in Valyrian Steel forging. I think that's very possible. Also, it's likely dragons are an integral part of the forging. That, uh, yeah, that is almost directly confirmed in the World of Ice and Fire. Question continues. Which is now potentially possible to utilize again for the first time in 150 years. Dragonfire, that is. Sam is going to rewrite those ancient books. They will not have anything about John's lineage, so perhaps the Valyrian steel formula or theory of the formula is in there. Or at least maybe some of the theory. Like maybe they, maybe, maybe a book that, that gets at the ingredients for Valyrian steel without getting all the way, and it's up to Sam to maybe <laughs> figure out that last little bit. Sam has his dad's sword, so who could he use that as a quality assurance benchmark? <laughs> Otherwise, what's the point of Sam taking the sword? Giving it to even the best warrior in the North won't turn the tides of the White Arm- White Walker army thoughts. That's a great idea because we thought he was going to give it to Jorah. Partly not, partly just because we didn't know what else he was going to do with it. But this is a good theory. Yeah, if he uses it, like, I mean, if he studies it, he's like, hey, I've got this Valyrian steel sword. Maybe I can, you know, uh, re- reverse engineer it <laughs> in some regard. And, you know, that's possible. I like that idea. That's clever. Because, yeah, what is he doing with that sword? And, yeah, and he's in a place that has all the knowledge. So put those two things together and, yeah, why not? I, I, I like the idea that uh, Jorah gets the sword, you know, because that John keeps Longclaw. 
And so, and Sam gives Jorah his Valyrian steel sword, you know, once they're up fighting or something. I, I like it, especially just because the idea that Jorah's heart is his bane. <laughs> Heart's bane, you know, he act, <laughs> that actually is the case for Jorah, that it's his love for love. I say in quotes because I don't know that I call it true love, but his love for <laughs> his, his high tower wife and Daenerys that causes him all of these problems. <laughs> What what would Randall Tarly say if he found out that his sword was owned by Jorah Mormont? Flavor. He would hate that so much. All the more reason for Sam to do it. <laughs> Just to rub it in his dad's face. <laughs> From Nick Williamson, could Arya be Tycho Nestoris? Whoa. Whoa. Well, I guess you never know who Arya is. Tycho didn't say anything that's like only the Iron Bank would know. Yeah. You know? I feel like Arya went north. It seemed like pretty clear yeah. that she was heading north, but maybe Arya could be Tycho Nestoris later. I don't know. I, I still feel like Serving Girl is her way in because that's how you sneak in. You know, that's how no one notices you. You're the mo- people. No one pays attention to Serving Girls except for their haircuts, and that I think that's more likely. But I like it. I like the thought. Uh, so keep an eye out for it. But I'm, I'm going to guess no. But I, I, I like the idea. Always good to be. Pay, it, it, it's smart to be wary of. Arya being someone else because <laughs> it's clearly happening, you know. <laughs> Whether we like it or not, it's happening a lot. She's taking on lots of people's faces. I like the idea that came up on on Monday in the show only that Arya would sneak into Winterfell as as a serving girl just to make sure everything's cool before she just waltzes in. You know, I like that idea. Also, so we have a question here from Acoustic Noise Machine. Since they probably won't address this in the show, based on book information, who do you think will rule Dorne with the Martells slash Ilaria out of the picture? I figure it's down to Ironwood or Dane. I'll say I think it would be Ironwood, except for there are... The show mentioned that there were eight Sand Snakes. Oberyn had eight daughters. So technically, Oberyn still has, you know, five daughters out there that could be the rulers of Dorne. So I there we're not gonna ever see it, so it's kind of a moot point to discuss, but I I, I guess Sorella if, if if it's Sorella in the sh- in the show canon, then she's got Dorne. <laughs> if she if people are willing to support her and if she's willing to make her case. Otherwise the Ironwoods definitely will make their case. And it depends most of all on who rules Westeros at the end of all this, because they will be able to make that decision on who's gonna rule Dorne. I agree. Yeah. Well said. Yeah, that that I think that seals that up nicely there. Someone says, Pumpkin says, Randall will get fried by a dragon. Yeah, yeah. I, I think so, too. I think that's going to happen. So. <laughs> He's going to play the role of King Mern from Which the Which is too bad, because I really wanted him to actually see, you know, the, the White Walkers or the Whites or something more supernatural than that. I really wanted him to, you know... Let him see the Wildlings fight for the realm. Yeah, yeah. Right? Well, I would, like, I would have liked that, but it doesn't seem like he is going to get that. Also, that guy's voice is just so powerful. I love that actor's voice. He's so <laughs> the good. The fourth captain says, Sorella of House Dorne, City of Dorne. <laughs> city of Dorne, yes. House Dorne, City of Dorne. Nice. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah. If you guys, I think I've mentioned this before, but if you guys have not watched the season six uh, histories and lore video, Randall Tarley, the actor, I forget his, his name. I'm forgetting his name, but he narrates the, the Tarley history. What's yeah, that? I think his last name's Faulkner. Oh, okay. James Faulkner. Seems like that's an appropriate name for such a big voice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. So yeah, so if you like his voice like me, well, that's another place to hear him talk. And he speaks. He's Randall Tarley very much in that scene, talking about what he did to Sam and why the. He's like. All the other lords of Westeros put animals on their sigil. You know, it's like we're a huntsman. 
uh, from Sean Alva. What is the Unsullied's path to get back to Dragonstone or the North? Okay, good. Very good question. It's it's not an easy path. Um, we in on Monday we talked about how uh, a clever listener pointed out the connection between this and the on the uh, Anabasis, the Greek Ten Thousand of, of Xenophon um, in the. Persian who fought in the Persian Civil Wars. They went to Persia and lost all their leaders and the guy they were fighting for and then had to find their way back to Greece through all this hostile territory where they need they had constantly had to they had to choose new leaders. They had to fight for food. They were, you know, harassed by a ton of different tribes and cultures. And well, there's not a ton of different tribes and cultures on the way, but the Riverlands are in control of House Lannister right now, and they're just gonna go have to cut through all of the Westerlands into the Riverlands and no one's going to give them food. They're going to have to fight for it. And winter is, is maybe going to hit them as well. Cause you know, if they go, depending on what route they take is if they cut through the Northern part of the Westerlands, it's already kind of snowy in some of those parts as we saw in the Riverlands elsewhere. And they're going to have a hard time. I do think that they're probably, I don't think we're going to see them do anything significant yeah, except maybe think, get back to Danny. I think they've got to just hold on there and let Danny and them come to come closer to them. Well, how do they, but they still have to worry about food though. Yeah, no, I think yeah. they got to go to Lannisport. They can't have cleared out Lannisport. I don't think the show's going to do that, but I think that's what they should do. Lannisport in the books is less than a mile from Casterly Rock. And we don't see it when we see Casterly Rock. So it's clearly not quite that close, but I feel like they, I mean, they they absolutely can't have evacuated Lannisport and all the food. So that's where the Unsullied need to go. Yeah, you're right. They couldn't have evacuated Lannisport, but Lannisport is a huge city, and even with their great army, would have a tough time taking it. Yeah. So I'm not sure. They're going to probably have to t- do, attack some villages and things like that, maybe to get what they need. So it's going to be hard for them. If if they stay there, it's going to be hard for them. If they go overland, it's going to be hard for them too. Um, which is why, either way, I don't think they're going to do anything significant the rest of the season. Uh, more on that on Saturday. I have a few more predictive thoughts on that, but it's it's not from trailer stuff. It's mostly just guesswork. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so thank you, Yoke Boy. It's too bad Lady Wynn couldn't join us, but I imagine the storms will be kinder next week. We can hope, anyway. Hopefully they're kind to us, too. So tell everyone um, how to find you all and all that. Thanks for having me, guys. It's It's been good. I tried to uh, kind of make do because Lady Gwyn had written a bunch of notes and then it was a storm. Anyway, if any of you listeners and watchers want to kind of get back to the books, uh, and you know, purely the books... Check out Radio Westeros. That's my podcast with Lady Gwyn. Um, we put a heck of a lot of work into the episodes. Pick your favorite character, and we've probably got an episode on them. He- hear their story from left to right. We'll analyze it. Yes, yes, definitely. I co-sign all that. It's for sure. I've listened to all their all their episodes. They're super thorough, and they cover all of a lot a lot of the main characters, some of our most popular and most favorite characters. And they have and cool little trivia episodes. Those yeah, those trivia quizzes are fun. We did some of, we did one of those in the car one time, and that was really fun. Okay, so also want to give some thanks to uh, Michael Clarfeld for doing our video intro, and Joey Townsend for the music, and Jesse Kowal for the outro music. Also give thanks to some patrons and thanks to Ashea for running production here. I'm glad you got to get in a lot of great talk as well while you're doing production. It's hard to do both together. So Yeah, it's extra hard because I can't type away because my key- my new keyboard is really loud. It really <laughs> drives me crazy. I don't know. Yeah, we don't want it, we don't want typing sounds um, going through the microphone. So I couldn't a... resist at one point, though. I had to type a scathing reply to Aker Frey who said Better Call Saul, Saul is meh. <laughs> and it is not. It's the best show on TV. Just have to, I have to say it out loud 
loud even. That's how much I want to fight him over that. <laughs> Lord you. of the Chicken Dance, don't don't mess with the Shay on Better Call Saul. <laughs> no, I, I agree. Better Call Saul is awesome. Anyway, let's uh, let's give some thanks to some patrons. As has this become a recent tradition, I'm grabbed grab some random patron names to throw out there because I love the names uh, as well as our regulars. Sir Kyle, the corporate fat cat. Claudius the Fool, vassal of Kingsgrave, sworn to house Manwoody. Severorium, war mage of the pale child and disciple of Bacalon. How cool is that? Eileen the Archer, queen of the border collie kingdom. <laughs> and Icelance, aka Lord Oakbag. <laughs> and our regular patrons, who are coming in a second as soon as I find my way here. Yes, we have our peers of the realm, including the mysterious BR, Hand of the King. Lord Jim the Fortuitous is of the Wars and Politics of Ice and Fire blog and Warden of the West. Lord George Stormsville the Cunning is Lord of the Chiliad and Warden of the East. Gabeth the Unfrozen is Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light, Defender of the Old Gods and Warden of the North. Lady Kelly McMath is Lady of the Villa Hills and Crescent Springs, Warden of the South. I see Nick Brooks says, can I get a shout out? Okay, Nick Brooks, there you go. Right There's there. your shout out. <laughs> Also, Lord Osborne of Castle Werewood, spreading the old gods by planting werewood saplings in the Reach, Stormlands, and Crownlands. The motto is, our roots run deep. He's thinking of planting some werewoods overseas, too, as well. We'll see how that goes. Also, Lord James Tuttle is king of the Stepstones and the Narrow Sea. He commands the Royal Fleet, which consists of the Narrow Fleet, commanded by the flagship Caraxes, and the Bloodstone Fleet, led by the flagship Prince Damon. This is very scandalous, since he was our master of ships, and has since stolen all these ships and gone off on his own to become a king. So, all uh, Orane Waters. Yes, very much like Orane Waters down there. And although, he, although Lord James is controlling more territory than uh, Lord Waters, the of Torturer's Deep. Thanks also to the rest of the small council. Lord James Inkblade is the Scholar Knight and Master of Whispers. Grand Maester Saria is of the Barrows. She is Cinder of the Citadel. Lord Robert Jacobs is Master of Coin. Rosie the Clever is Master of Laws. Lady Dire Liz of Castle Naki is the Alpha Patron. Lord Dan of the Red Mountains and Castle Great Bell is Breaker of the Second Stone. Lord Skip of the Velt is Lord of Castle Ganges. Gregor the Toasty is Lord of the Breadfort. Alicia Everlasting of the Greenblood is Lady of Desert Rose. Lord Ryan of Castle Stonegate is Guardian of the Rocky Mountain Pass. Lord Garen de Havilland is of Devil's Hand Keep. Ashlyn Winter is the Hawk's Eye, Lady of Castle Skyfall. Lady Mikkel of Moonacre is leader of the Werewood Protector Alliance. That is a Facebook uh, group for the game Game of Thrones Ascent. Good job. Uh, the Lord of the Halls of Castle Hillcrust is the wielder of the Valyrian Steel Machete Everglazed. Lord Alistair Whitaker is Lord of the Dawnhold. Lord Bemmy Snugglebunny is Guardian of the Hidden Hundred Acre Werewood and Holder of the Vorpal Snugglebunny. Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Blackrune is Sworn Alesmith to House Stark, Grand Master of the Zithamancer's Guild and Keeper of the Buzz. Brian the Defender is Lord of the Spearfort and the Freelands, last scion of Clan McCulloch, Strength and Courage. The Bachelor of the Wolfswood is First Forester of the Old Gods, sworn to House Iron Werewood. Their motto is Listen for the Silence. Connor the Dungeon Master is Lord of Catamount Keep and Guardian of the Smoky Mountain Pass. Our King's Justice is Sir Troy the Steady, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Blade Fate. Lady Jane of House Celtigar is. Oh, I'll let you go. Uh, yeah. Excuse me. My first time here, I've got the Queen's High Council. That's right. Our first member is Lady Jane of House Celtigar, the Emerald of the Evening, wielder of the Valyrian Steel Axe, Painkiller, Mistress of Sea Eagles, and Mistress of Ships. And then we've got Lady Mai of House Swan, Mistress of Whisperers, and she might have some new 
Lothcombe coming to her title soon. That's right. And we also have two other members of the Queen High Council who have yet to have their nicknames established, but so that Queen's High Council is filling up fast. Yeah, it is filling up fast, and the Queen's Guard is already full. That's right. Do I get and to read that one? Yeah, go ahead and read them all. We're not going to read them every time, but definitely read them this time. Okay. My Queen's Guard, which again, is already full, already full. It filled up in like 48 hours. It's crazy to me. Uh, Lord Commander, Lord Captain Commander, Hema Hellman, the Sellsword Sentinel, Lady Nymeria of House C. Per- I can't do the R right there. Per- I can't do it. I'm not going to keep trying. I'm going to get it. I'm going to get like a little sound bite. You're going to make her practice her rolling R's. Just yeah, for okay. This. You're going to make me practice it. House C. Pertle. Alexander of House Atreides from the Seat of Doom. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Jane Grey. Lady S. or Esky. I hope you message us and tell me if I said it right. Of the Tattered Spires. First Sword of Albion. The Pest. And Becca the Bard, Songbird of the North. And I want to highlight, my High Council is entirely women right now. And the Queen's Guard is the majority women too. So all these women coming out of the woodwork. That's cool. Our Beard Guard is commanded by Lord Commander George the Golden. And last but not least, we have our History of Westeros Night's Watch, which is commanded by Lord Commander Daenerys Flint of the Night Fort, avenging the memory of Brave Danny. And First Ranger Fabian Flowers, the Bastion of Greenshield, First Builder Patchface of Motley Wisdom, and First Steward Sir Jurion of the Torrentine called Palewind. Again, these are our Patreon supporters. That's who, really, of all things, we do have some corporate sponsorships. Very rarely we get something. We get a little bit of revenue here and there, but Patreon is the thing that really keeps the show going. It is the majority of our income. So you guys are basically the reason this exists. The reason we can do three episodes a week is yeah. mostly because of Patreon. So we'll do anything for our patrons, like these cool shout outs. And anything, Anything, huh? anything. Well, maybe not anything. I shouldn't say that. <laughs> Finger up the bum. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, yeah, nothing that nothing that Euron suggests it counts. <laughs> So thanks, everybody, again. Thanks again to Radio Westeros. Thanks to everyone who attended the live chat. Looks like we got um, close to 500 today. And as we reestablish a new time for this, since we had these on Tuesdays, I think a few people missed it because they didn't, didn't know about the time change. But this is where it's going to be for the rest of the season, most likely. Uh, maybe we'll change it, but most likely Wednesdays for the rest of the year. And... The rest of the year. The rest of the year. The rest of the four more episodes. But we'll probably do some, you know, post episode as well, as we usually do. So that's that, folks. On behalf of everybody, we'll say Valar next time us and enjoy Sunday's episode, which is entitled The Spoils of War.